0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions.
1: Hello, welcome to the Woof Den. This is Dan David and the I Hung Up on Warren Buffett podcast. We have the Woof Pack with us, the usual pack, Matiko, our producer, Carl, our sound engineer, God help us all, and Tank Sherman. Today we have a very special guest, Steve Bannon. It's a pretty interesting get for us, but Steve's got a finance background, so this is the mix of politics and finance that we'll be doing in our series. And I think you're going to find this a very interesting interview. It's a long interview. It's three hours. But the background there is Steve agreed to give us an hour. And the conversation the first day went two hours. Steve was relaxed. He was unlike you've ever heard him before, unlike I've ever heard him before anyway, I should say. Uh, And going into that two hours, he was so rushed to get out and feeling like there was stuff on the table to discuss. He agreed to give us another hour the next day. This ends up being two distinctly different tones in an interview. Uh, so I think you'll see more of the Steve Bannon you might be used to talking policy and his opinions the second day, but Steve really talking about Steve on the first day. And there's some pretty surprising things that came out of this conversation. And first I'll tell you that the technique employed here or what I what I thought I wanted to accomplish was to get Steve to relax and just be able to talk because he's more of an image to many people than he is a person and I want people to come on the show and their image is one thing but we want to know who the person is so the first half hour we are talking background where he grew up what kind of person he is some softball questions in there like you know he likes baseball so you know yeah, are you for or against a designated hitter? seems like a silly question, but that started to relax Steve, and Steve was able to roll on from there. I thought it was a pretty good conversation. Some things surprised me in this conversation. Uh, as for instance, he has an ownership stake in Seinfeld to this day and a great, colorful story there. Uh, and some of his policies surprised me. I don't know Steve well. Uh, I met him one time uh, and had a conversation with him for about a half an hour. That's the only time we've ever had any one-on-one conversation, and that was over a year ago. Outside of that, I didn't really know him very well, and I thought it was interesting to try and get to know him. And maybe through this interview, you'll get to know him. Maybe he's going to be different than you think he is, uh, or maybe he's everything you thought he was. Who knows? You take your own perspective from it. But that's what you have coming your way. A few revelations in here from Steve that are are pretty shocking, uh, that I think, and maybe you will too. So with that, let's get on to it, and let's uh, welcome Steve Bannon to the Wolf Den. Or as he would put it if he called me, Stephen K. Bannon. Welcome, Steve.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, guys.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'm okay to call you Steve, right? Because when you do call me, you say Stephen K. Bannon.
0: You can call me anything but late for supper.
1: You got got it. I think that's a very interesting thing with you. When You you know, like I'm expecting your call and I'll answer the phone and I'll say, hey, this is Dan. You're like, Dan, Stephen K. Bannon. I'm just I'm just wondering because this is a casual conversation. This is getting to know who you are as a person is a part of what we're doing here. Do you ever call anybody and say, hey, man, Steve? And, this, and your buddy kind of says back, yeah, what's up, asshole? Where you been? Do you have those kind of personal relationships like I do, for instance?
0: I, I never thought about it, but yeah, I think I do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you seem kind of formal at times. Like, and I know that, like, look, I mean, I, I have to say going into this, I have never gotten so much unsolicited advice on a guest before. When I've told a few people, look, I'm I'm going to talk to Steve Bannon, and yeah. it ranges from, hey, you can't let that guy off the hook. You have to go at him, and you have to ask him about this thing and that thing. To, yeah. well, you have to thank him for being a great American. He's a wonderful man, and you make sure you do that.
0: Well, I appreciate the latter, but I want to hear the former. Well, I like I like to fight. I don't like to cut. You know, I always like to cut through the bullshit. Look, life is obviously it's just too short not to leave your mark and not to, you know, not to get on with it. I'm glad I trigger people. I should trigger people. I'm there to trigger people. I'm there to, to, to the world needs big time changes, particularly for working class and for those people, whether they're deplorables or whether they're Lao Beijing. and I, I'm a fighter for the little guy. I always have been. So I, I'm glad I trigger people. People say what I really love is when loud say, don't let him off the hook. Give me the best shot. Give me the best question. Give me the absolute best question you got from that guy. Give me your, what did he say? Give me, he said, don't let him off the hook.
1: Give me
0: the, give me me the hook. No, right now. Give me the hook. What was his hook?
1: This is, this isn't that show for them. I want to know. I want to know who you are. I want to know who your friends think you are, not who Fox news thinks you are and who MSNBC thinks you are because neither of them are right. In my opinion, they don't really know who you are. Uh, and like, where did you grow up? What informs you? I've seen, like I saw American Dharma, which is kind of a take on, you know, this is Steve from the beginning, before it really veered off, in my opinion, where it just starts blowing shit up in the background when you're talking and, you know, kind of informs the viewer of what they should be thinking. I don't, I don't have that opinion. I want to I hear from you. I, if I had, you know, uh, AOC on here or Michael Moore, Uh, I wouldn't be interested in machine gunning them or anybody else. I'd want to hear from them who they are as a human being. So, you know, with that, you know, who are you, Steve? Where'd you grow up?
0: I don't think, look, it's a very, you know, it's a basic story. Middle class, working class family. Uh Uh, It was at the phone company. His dad was at the phone company 50 years. He was with the phone company for 50 years. I think they may be the only father-son combo to ever do that. Um, You know, he was Uh a lineman for the phone company. A mom, you know, was a housekeeper. Uh, uh, was a was a uh, was a mom, you know, didn't have a job outside because she raised five kids. Some of the Catholic school. Didn't have, you know, at the time, never thought about not being wealthy. But you know, they paid for Catholic school, and it's a very, you know, kind of 1950s, 1960s post-war story. There was nothing extraordinary. You know, it was just a, a, a an average kid. You know, played sports as kind of. A What'd little you men- play? Football, rich. Played everything, you know, played golf, played baseball, the left-handed pitcher, became a relief pitcher. And, and when I went, I went to a Catholic uh, military prep school, became a, a relief pitcher. The, so uh, so the, I got to ask you,
1: you brought up baseball. People want to know the important question, Steve, Amer- yeah. American League or National League?
0: You know, it's, I was a Pittsburgh Pirate fan growing up as a kid. Because they won the World Series in '60, and I listened to it as a you know our teacher in kindergarten. I think it was let's to it. So I was kind of a Pirates fan, mm-hmm. but gravitated I guess more to the to the American League later on in Boston and New York as I, you know, went to school at Harvard and then um, uh, lived in New York City. Not really a Yankees fan, but uh, but really uh, became more of American League.
1: So you're okay uh, with the designated hitter, even though
0: throw baseball. I've never be, I'm not a fan of the DH.
1: Oh, good because you need you need more strategy when you don't have real, a DH.
0: Actually it's real baseball. Right. Real baseball.
1: So you grew up in an idyllic family, kind of the yeah. average nineteen sixties. A lot of yeah. laughter in your household. You had four brothers and sisters, right? Did you yeah. was it a Middle. serious family? Was it as a happy, you know, kind of existence there?
0: Dostoevsky says uh, all happy families are the same and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. We're a very happy family, very close. My dad just had his nine ninth birthday, all the Oh, we called five OGs, all the all the kids came back. I'm lucky my brother's sisters are still alive. My mom passed away
1: many decades ago. But no, it's
0: a very, very happy family, very close. My kid brother's my closest, uh, ki- you know, kid. I never had a room to myself, um, you know, because I, I always had uh, somebody in the bunk bed, My one of my brothers, and, mm-hmm. you know, in the Navy, I had, and always had shipmates. So it's, yeah. um, no, it's... Uh, it was, it's just a, it, 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 there's nothing extraordinary. It's a classic Catholic, you know, parochial school upbringing, you know, a guy who was kind of maybe a slightly above average in sports, but not good enough to play in college. And, um, you know, just had a, just had a great, happy life and uh, great experience. And mother was well read and read a ton and just, you know, just was, and they very focused on patriotism and, kind of the church, you know, you you had institutions, your life revolved around the family, the church, Yeah, Uh, had a ton of people in the military, my family, because we came really from Norfolk, Virginia, big Navy town, and no, it just, it was, so it's, uh, you know, pretty pretty standard, very extraordinary in the fact of how great it was, but really very, very, very normal. Well, the one thing is that I'm really proud of my parents in about the mid 60s and 64. We lived in an old neighborhood in the north side of Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And with when busing came and everything happened, the civil rights movement, the neighborhood became, uh, was probably the first neighborhood in Richmond, became integrated. And today it's it's been for many, probably 40 years, a, a predominantly black neighborhood. Fact, how, did parent, those-
1: how did your parents handle that? No, they just, my mom
0: said, we're not going to run to the suburbs. This is our house. Uh My dad lives in the same house he bought, I think, in 1956 or 57 for like 2500 bucks. Lives in the exact same house. Um, It's the house we were all raised in. Had basically one working bathroom. And uh, just, you know, you made it work. But at the time, it seemed like a castle. And a predominantly black neighborhood uh, today right, for the last 30, 40 years, my mom said, hey, these folks are our neighbors. And she was very close to uh, many of the black families in the neighborhood, as we all were. And my mom was really one of the first volunteers to work for a guy called Doug Wilder, who at the time, I think was a city councilman from our neighborhood and became mayor and eventually became the first black governor of Virginia after, from Reconstruction. And so it was just, you know, it was very, uh, the one thing I've noticed that's different is that you know, particularly when I went to Hollywood and other places, is that or Wall Street. You know, I had actually been raised around, uh, you know, black people, and uh, and uh, and my parents would—they just refused to run to the suburbs. Uh, they refused to have the white flight. They said, "This is our neighborhood," and they really fought for uh, the ending of um, of uh, of people that uh, you know. They really fought for busing. Judge Marriage was a guy that I think actually went to our church. He was the federal judge in Richmond that um, that ordered busing, uh, which was really to try to make sure the suburbs had equal, you know, really supported these inner city schools with all the school, all the public schools that basically all the whites had fled. And my parents, my parents who were not, you know, progressive or liberals really, dis- really disagreed with this. And the city's got to hold together and people ought to learn how to live together, et cetera. So.
1: But you were raised in a Democrat. Uh, family, Yeah, correct? they were
0: Democrats, hardcore Democrats. So.
1: I, I I guess, I guess this would put you in the JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King era. How did you How did you feel? Do you remember where you were when JFK was was killed?
0: Yeah, I think it was. I remember specifically. I think it was. <laughs> I think it was in the third grade, and uh, I think it was like Sister Catherine's. I think Sister Catherine. We had like you know eighty kids in the class or something, uh, which was the, still the best education I got. Cause Sister Catherine, who had to be a hundred years old. Was very focused on each individual and, and your, your shortcomings before both God and her. And uh, she made sure that you learned your lesson. So now I, I remember that they came in. Sister Damien was the, these were Benedictine nuns. So she was, I went to a, a Torker school called St. Paul's. And Sister Damien came in. I remember she popped her head in and she said, uh, The president's just been shot. Now you got to realize John Kennedy was everything to us. My parents were. Uh, you know, this huge Kennedy people, as we all were. We all walked the neighborhood. As my older brother says, and, and he's a, a Republican today, but he says he doesn't want to. You know, he doesn't need Democrats lecturing him about being a Democrat. Because as a kid, he walked the neighborhood for Adley Stevenson the second time he got beat. Wow, so, that's a hard once quarter.
1: wasn't enough. He got pummeled twice.
0: They had they they he would walked in '56, I guess it was. For Adley Stevenson, who got, I think, smoked in Virginia. Um, no, but um, no, Kennedy was everything. You know, we had the picture of Kennedy in the in the, in the house next. You had, you know, you had like Jesus, and you had, yeah, Kennedy. Right, so right, so right. We, a lot of
1: houses had that.
0: Was very Virginia had, you know, a lot of a lot of religious bigotry, right, by certain aspects of the Klan and certain aspects of the of the, uh, you know, just the kind of the the hardcore Masons, right? These crackers who didn't obviously detested black people and they, they didn't like Jews and they, they Catholics were kind of the third, although not as much pressure as the first two, they didn't like Catholics either. And uh, no, but when Kennedy was shot, I remember we all, Sister Damien came in and Sister Catherine immediately got us on her knees and we prayed for the president. And then a few minutes later, it seems like Sister Damien came in and said the president was dead. And you know everybody went to the school assembly that had an old auditorium and we went there and prayed and had a service for him. And then school was immediately dismissed. Uh, which was, you know, pretty shocking in itself. So it's, uh, no, and that whole weekend, I was glued to the TV. You know, it was the first, I was, I watched live. In third
1: grade, you're glued to the TV.
0: Yeah, it was third, so it was 63, I think it was third or fourth grade. It was sister Catherine, so it must have been third grade.
2: Wow, Um, okay.
0: um, But I watched all weekend. I remember on the Sunday with my dad, we were, I forgot we were going to do in church. We were getting ready to go to church or something. I was watching with my dad when Oswald came out and got shot live on TV. Just right there. You saw that uh,
1: happen live on TV?
0: It happened live on TV. In fact, we were going to go up to to stand in line to see the body, but it was so cold, my parents at the last minute waved off. We lived down in Richmond, so we lived like two hours away at the time, maybe two and a half hours away. Uh And um, we were going to go to see the casket, but we decided to— to just go to the church and be part of a vigil for the president uh, instead, but no, it was a—I uh, remember it like it was yesterday—the whole assassination, and particularly that
1: weekend. Well, that's, that's its amazing that that was just as impactful to you as it was to you know, much of my family as I hear the stories, uh, and I imagine that you know MLK, Martin Luther King, uh, was was a pretty impactful event for your family as well. Do you remember that situation?
0: Yeah, it was you know, and by '68. People don't realize, I mean, we had, I think um, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. And I think RFK was 90 days later. People yeah. forget it. The yep. cities were on fire. My sister had actually been gone up, driven drive with my mom with her Volkswagen Beetle up to uh, D.C. I think she was actually interviewing at the Pentagon for a job. And uh, they went over to D.C. And uh, I think it was like the day after the, Dr. King was assassinated. And that's when the DC riots—I mean, the, the 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 riots in the cities and the in the burning—became um, a, a huge thing. People forget. 1968 is just a probably it, it probably matches 2020 as just a, uh, a a horrible year. I forget what the British call it, an honest horrible or something. The, the, but it's what the Queen calls it. It, it was, uh, you know, I was a—I think I was in my eighth grade. I had not gone to high school. In fact, I think I was getting ready to graduate from grammar school. In that spring, just so many things were happening. You had Vietnam. Yeah, I think the Tet I think Tet offensive was.
1: Yeah, yeah. For
0: offensive, I think Tet offensive was in like January, February. Uh huh. War, of kind of came up because we watched the news every night. Uh, you know, basically the war was over. We had lost, and uh, which actually, I don't think
1: the- we were admitting that at that time.
0: Yeah, no, and we had tons of guys that, you know, from the, from the, uh, from, uh, you know, the, the from the parish and from different places, the Benedictine, the, the prep school, everybody went to the military prep school, had gone to Vietnam. And, um, it was, um, you know, it was, you started off with that, uh, every, I was a paper boy. So I would take, you know, every day in the paper, you see like 300,000 troops, 250,000 troops, every, everything was Vietnam. And then you had, um. You had Dr. King, you had the assassination, uh, in Memphis. And then you had the, uh, and then you had Robert Kennedy's right after that. It was, it was, uh, so that was, and you think about it, that all happened within, I think Dr. King and Kennedy were 90 days and, and, and with Ted and, or the Vietnam, uh, configure, you know, conflagration was like in five months, it just changed everything. I remember actually at home watching when Lyndon Johnson came out and, um, had, had finished, he had finished first in, uh. New Hampshire, but I think it barely beaten uh, Eugene McCarthy, who was the anti-war candidate, and I just remember him coming on national TV and my sitting there with my dad in the family room and watching it when he, he gave this talk, and then at the end said, hey, I'm not going to run for re-election. And uh, it, it hit us it hit kind of a bombshell.
1: So, I mean, it was a young age for you, but you seem to remember a lot about that. Do you Did you have a view of politics then? Were you skeptical of politicians? Uh, did you or were you just like taking it all in? It was coming at you from the television, and you're understanding it as a as an eighth grader ninth grader.
0: I don't think I really. Afford, I mean, look, you just you know, the United States was kind of an ordered society, and uh, you know, you had a guy like Jack Kennedy who was dynamic and and, right. and you know, war hero and everything. Then he's assassinated. Um, you couldn't figure that out. You couldn't figure you know the whole thing with Oswald, and and then he had Vietnam as a paper boy. I just remember every day. You know, just and I'd read the paper front to back as my mom would too, and dad. Uh, and we talked about world events every night at, at dinner, just a free flowing conversation. And um, it just, I, I just one thing that stuck in my mind as a paperboy, the Vietnam thing. No matter what people said, it always got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the whole thing was about the troops, and you know, you had fifty thousand, then you had a hundred thousand, then you had two hundred fifty thousand. I remember one time, I think it was five hundred thousand. I'm sitting there, a headline. 500,000 troops in Vietnam, it just seemed like people would say one thing, but reality was something else. That's one thing that always, you know, stuck with me. And, and, and in 68, I think as a young kid, you just got a sense that things are really out of control. I mean, you have these guys that are the world leaders, you know, Dr. King, particularly in the South of what he had done with, uh, with, uh, nonviolence. Cause remember Dr. King's big thing was, uh, you had guys like Malcolm X and H. Uh, Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown and all these guys you would see, uh, and particularly living in a, in a, in a you know in a, in the north side of Richmond predominantly black. Um, you know, Dr. King was a was a preacher and would really preach this gospel of nonviolence and and uh, passive resistance, and those sorts of things, and to um, and to see these guys assassinated, particularly assassinated like and you couldn't figure out like in memphis when dr king got assassinated it was like who was the guy you couldn't track him down it was very and then kennedy just gets gunned down it's at Cold still War. to this
1: day kind of murky isn't it
0: very murky and searhan searhan's very murky i mean that yeah. robert kennedy wins remember kennedy kind of comes in and he i think was a little more progressive and anti-war one thing about our family is that we were democrats but we were pro-military pro uh patriotic you know, Johnson, my parents had kind of worked for Johnson as a, as, you know, as 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 volunteers for the simple reason that, uh, you know, he was Kennedy's guy. And just to see this whole thing so far off track and, and what's happening. And the thing was, why why are we not winning in Vietnam? Why are we not letting our troops win? Why are we not in Hanoi? I just remember all this talk about people are fighting with one hand tied behind our back. Our kids are getting you know, shot up and, and, and we're not winning, right? People say we're winning, but then again, you look like, and then the Tet Offensive, it's just a very confusing time. And then these people would get assassinated. You know, you had John Kennedy, who was this global icon, and you had Martin Luther King, who's a global icon, and you had Robert Kennedy, who then came and was a global icon. And these guys that are killing them are like, you know, it's, it's uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and whoever the guy is in, 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 in Memphis, uh, in the, in the Sirhan Sirhan in, in, uh, in, um, in L- L.A. at the Ambassador Italia, you do, who are these guys? And how can they get that close to people? And it's just, It was just very confusing as a young person, right? So it's yeah. one thing that you, and you also saw these institutions like the church. I remember we had these very, uh, even at mass, people would go after each other afterwards because I went to a Catholic military prep school that was very pro-military. A lot of kids came out there and went in the military or went to the service academies. And you had parents who were, wouldn't let their kids go there, and one of the one of the priests came back from like Central America, and one day at the in the pulpit he said, you know, something about baby killers. And I remember my dad, who's incredibly devout. I mean, he's one of these guys that goes to mass all the time. He's, he takes communion all the time, almost a daily communicant uh, at one part of his life. And uh, I remember we're sitting there in this in this priest who had come back from Central America who was pretty radical. He's in the pulpit and, and giving this. Uh, this talk at mass, and he starts calling, like, the military press. prosecutor I went to was, like, forming baby killers who would go to Vietnam. And, wow. and my dad, like, stood up in the middle of mass and walked out of mass. Wow. And, it was like, you know, later, we kind of said, well, he says, like, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have done that, but I couldn't take any more. I was afraid I was going to say something. So when he's – and he's the most basic guy in the world. I mean, it's all – his life is around the church, the family, the telephone company – Right. Just very basic stuff. And when you see guys like that that are starting to question, you just realize, hey, this thing is coming apart. Well,
1: they we felt. not I, I talk about like now, 68,
0: 68 and 2020 are very similar. I was just going to
1: say that I, I talk about that because, like, I see the most normal people now so fed up and and at their wit's end and 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 frayed really on the edges that they're starting to act out in a way that they never thought they would before. They're starting to just be so frustrated and it, it manifests in two different ways. They either completely close themselves off to the conversation, the world, politics, whatever, or they become this person you can't even speak to, you can't disagree with. Like they just want to be heard. They just want to they want the, the government to hear them as well, and people don't think that the government is listening, uh, and and that becomes the issue. For you, Steve, from there you you were in high school. I imagine Vietnam loomed large for you. You could have been drafted at any time, but you did go to college, uh, and I, I think it was Virginia Tech, right?
0: Yeah, I go. To, I think uh, my military prep school had a hundred kids. We had basically a hundred at the time per class. I think we had twenty-three go to VPI. It was a big engineering school, had a big cadet corps. But I knew I was gonna go into service. You know, my parents were very focused on us going in as officers. There had not been an officer. First of all, my sister's the first person in the entire extended family of Bannons, right, and others to ever go to college. Mm -hmm. My mom was very adamant that all five of her kids were gonna be college graduates. She was also adamant that her sons were gonna be uh, if they win the military, they're going to be officers, not enlisted men. My my entire family were enlisted people. We had uh, non-commissioned officers, and chief warrant officers, people like that. But didn't have any officers. So when I went to VPI, I had thought about one time earlier on maybe going to a service academy, but at the time I was planning on being a naval officer, you know. And uh, so I thought I'd go to Virginia Tech and uh, VPI twenty three. All my best friends went there. We all lived basically together. And um, I was thinking one time being an engineer that lasted about two days, um, and uh, went to the College of Architecture uh, in the Environmental and Urban Systems program, which was really the easiest, most non-mathematical program I could glide through. And um, so I had a great four years there and then signed up in my, basically my senior year uh, to to uh, uh, basically, you know, test into and go to Officer Candidate School upon graduation. The first slot they had open for me.
1: And And, and you did end up going to the Navy. Uh, yeah. and you did end up becoming that officer uh, yeah. and you ended up on a destroyer in the South China sea.
0: I was very fortunate. So as a kid, you know, uh, most of our families in Norfolk. So a lot of my ex- formative experiences around the Norfolk family, around the Navy and hearing all these stories and uh, it, I, you know, you're permeated with the stories of world war II. But what really got me was the, the stories about the Pacific. And I became as a kid, absolutely obsessed with the, the Pacific War, um, I, I knew uh, just I, I studied it. You know, I studied a lot of military history, but I really knew the uh, the war in the Pacific, and just always wanted to be, from a very young kid, a naval officer, kind of like Jack Kennedy was was in uh, was PT right. a, yeah. a movie that had a massive impact on me as a young kid was *The Bridge in the River Kwai*, uh, wow. and just seeing that jungle and all this foreign, you know, and China had a huge just even draw to me. So I was very focused going to the Navy to be a, I wanted to be in the seventh fleet. I wanted to be part of that fleet that had won the Pacific war was so famous. And I just, you know, I finished very high in my class. I think I might've been number one in my officer candidate class, because remember if you're not Naval Academy and if you're not OCS, those are the ones they really got investments in. Mm-hmm. As an OCS guy, you're just some um, Schmendrick, right? That's a 90 day wonder or four months. So if you wash out or something like that, it's, they're not losing anything. Right, um, but I was very fortunate. I finished very high in Newport at Officer of Canada School. I got to select. I basically got to select. Uh, since I was number one, I got to select my uh, destroyer. I got to pick my ship and a in in the in where I was. And I got a Spruance class destroyer, which the, the the newest, most radically designed destroyer probably in the history of the United States Navy. Uh, I got to pick a Spruance class destroyer, and I got San Diego, California. So I got both, it was just fantastic. And I got to my ship and it was, it was a hand-picked. The uh, Paul F. Foster was DD-964, is the second ship of the class, the, the 963 class, the Spruance class named after Admiral Spruance, um, came out of the yards in passed Cagula, uh in not great shape. And it had a lot of things that had to work out. So the, really the first ship of the class became the Paul F. Foster, my ship, 964, it was a hand-picked crew. It was a hand-picked wardroom. I had nothing but brigade, and I had finished very high at surface warfare officer school. Also, so I got on board here and you had brigade commander at Ohio State, which is one of the premier ROTC units in the country. You had brigade commander from Notre Dame, which is the premier uh, uh, ROTC Navy, uh, second only to the Naval Academy. You had, I think, two or three brigade commanders from the Naval Academy. We had the brigade commander from... University of Mississippi. These are really the top programs in the country. We had the number one uh, ensign or Lieutenant JG, etc, handpick crew, great captain Captain Sullivan, who eventually uh, went on to other things. Our second the next two eventually uh, were commanding officers of battleships uh, which have been brought back back in those days. So I got on board and it was just incredible. And as soon as I got on board, we essentially deployed to uh, Asia. And I deployed to the South Patrol the South China Sea and to visit Hong Kong and China and the East China Sea and all that Japan and it was just it was a it was just a fabulous experience. I was thrown in as the A Gang Officer. That's the Assistant Engineer, and it's uh, it's the, what they call the cream of the crap. In in uh, you got every you got all the responsibilities. Everything that's not electronic warfare or a main engine turbine. I had really tough guys. It was a great. I learned more about leadership. You know, I thought I was a uh, student body president at Tech. I thought I was a great leader, and I realized that all I was doing was pointing middle-class kids who were very motivated. Let's go that way. The Navy taught me real leadership. It taught me. And and the reason I was all the guys in my division, I think we had 29 guys. This is the beginning of the all-volunteer force, right after Vietnam. Vietnam had just ended. And they had a choice. They had a choice between jail or the military. And I realized very early that these these were the deplorables. These people were incredible. They would kill for you. They would work. And you just got in there and, you know, and rolled your sleeves up and and gave them an even break and and had their back. They would they would turn heaven and earth. And I realized I said the systems never worked for these guys at all. And there was a cross section. There were,
1: you know, that that then or you realize that now?
0: No, I realized that at the time. I realized that hey, these guys have never. Because when you read their service service jackets, you think you're you know in some criminal gang, and when you get there, you realize that you just support them. Look, they're not all angels. That we had definitely had problems, but it was you know my experience there. A gang. I got to be you know uh, was a junior officer of the deck. I got to be officer of the deck very quickly. My division was very squared away. Uh, we we got all the stuff done we had to. The ship was a very new ship that they got. And they had a lot of problems with evaporators. A lot of the equipment was brand new. Uh, and then I, I I fleeted up really to become navigator for a second deployment. It was very fortunate that the XO and the CO were East Coast sailors. So they had very little, uh, they had no Pacific Fleet experience. And all of a sudden, the couple of the junior officers, myself, were really experienced. We'd already done a, a very tough deployment. in What made uh, it tough? it we were at sea a lot. The, the ship was a, a it was a, our our mission. The Spruance was class was built as a plane guard ship for carrier battle groups. We were state of the art anti submarine warfare, so the whole thing was to hunt Soviet submarines. Fat, basically, right. fancy. It's submarines. South China
1: Sea, but you're not really worried about China. You're you're right there with China Russia.
0: was a total non event at that time. Yeah. so China was not relevant. It was it was Russia. Yeah, it was the Union, and eventually in the second deployment. We, we basically got underway. What you do when you're in San Diego, you, you deploy to the Hawaiian op area. You do a changeover from the 3rd Fleet to the 7th Fleet. 7th Fleet is an operational fleet in the Western Pacific. The 3rd Fleet is the operational fleet in the, on the Pacific Coast. And what you do is you do a changeover. What you do is exercises. You get used to the way the 7th Fleet did tempo. Uh, and we were doing practice. We had this massive operation going on off of Hawaii. This is the second deployment. When the red phone went up and said, everybody in port to Hawaii immediately. And it was like, had to be 40 or 50 ships. And that's very extraordinary because Pearl Harbor is a very tough sea detail, uh, particularly with modern ships. It's one of the reasons Pearl was such a problem when the attack in Japan, ships couldn't get out because a very narrow, mm-hmm. very narrow passway. In addition, Honolulu's so exploded in growth, it's very tough at night to get really your markings to go in there because the city so so has grown up. It's very tough to find it, really kind of figure out where you are. And we were line, told to line up on the carriers and to go in in the middle of the night. And it was when we were lining up and getting set to go in that we were told that the hostages had been taken in uh, in Tehran and that uh, we would be deployed immediately to the Persian Gulf. Now, what happened is that as we went in, and I was the navigator, so the ex the navigator and the, and the CEO had to go over to... Pacific Fleet headquarters, everybody got brief. We kind of found out we had to get the charts for the South Pacific, everything like that. And then, and then, you know, Diego Garcia. We got out, and then, we, then it was determined that uh, we have a treaty with Korea that we would keep a, a carrier battle group. It's been told at the time, but back then it was secret, but it's something that people know for the last 40 or 50 years that we would follow the Midway. Uh, we would we would plane guard the midway because we could we were the only ship that could go 35 knots. We would follow the midway and actually go to Korea, not to the everything in Yokohama, everything in Yokuska, everything in Subic Bay. Everybody was heading to the Persian Gulf, mm-hmm. to the North Arabian Sea. And uh, we would go to Korea and follow the Midway. And we went and followed her, and then we broke off eventually after we got we had some mechanical problems. Uh, we eventually went to the North Arabian Sea into the Persian Gulf uh, and got ready for the, we practiced and worked up to the assault in Tehran that eventually, eventually well, failed.
1: Before the assault, what was, what was the, the feeling of the fellow sailors when that, I, I remember the hostage crisis. Now I, I was 10, I was 10 and I still remember it like it was yesterday. So that was a big yeah. deal for me. Uh, you're, you're a bit older, you're, you're on a destroyer. What was the feeling on that ship? When you had heard what happened there and hostages were taken in Tehran,
0: it was just hey, this is a job we got to do. You know something. You know something's The balloon's gone up and there, there's a big problem. Um, you know, Iran has uh, fallen and it's become this kind of radicalized country. We didn't know a lot of details. I didn't really know and we didn't really understand even about the hostages. We just knew that there was a major development and that the, the Pacific, basically the Seventh Fleet, we, we had a whole thing because I was navigator. We had an entire, almost deployment worked out for the next three or four months of working in the South China Sea, going to Hong Kong, going to the Philippines, then going up to the East China Sea. We we had the charts. We really had everything, and that was just all gone. Everybody was heading to the North Arabian Sea into the Persian Gulf. And you got to remember, nobody had ever been there. The charts we were using were in the for the South Pacific, were charts that I think were done by Cook in the Royal Navy. No. Uh, it was just, yeah, it was not, remember, even in World War II, like Guadalcanal, we had Solomon Islands. We had very de minimis. We don't really know that part of the world, right? That I don't really know how was, I can
1: remember that. I didn't know that to this day.
0: the, the British, the, the Dutch East Indies, which is, you know, in Indonesia today and all those countries, the Dutch East Indies and all of those areas are very, not really the American Navy kind of went through island hop, shot it up and moved on. Um, so it's not a place we know the the Straits of Malacca, Going past Singapore was really not a place that the Navy had been a lot of. They had a, a white fleet, I think it was in Bahrain, uh, that was a couple of ships. But no, Diego Garcia was this basically an atoll with a with a a pier that went out. Uh, the British controlled it. Was uh, the charts were all Royal Navy charts. We had very little understanding. And there was two in the North Arabian Sea, right off Iran, before you hook into the Persian Gulf there. There was called Gonzo Station and Camel Station. Those are two, uh, you know, geosynchronous or two two places of latitude and longitude where the carry of ma- major carry of battle groups would be. You have a carry of battle group at Gonzo Station, a carry of battle group at Camel Station, and uh, and those were you know we did workups, workups, uh, you know, nonstop. I, I do remember as a junior officer. By
1: workups, could- you mean like for an assault.
0: Practice for the assault. Basically, yeah. every day you get there, and it was you know 110 degrees. I don't ever remember seeing the sun in the North Arabian Sea or the or the or the Persian Gulf. It's just all gray, all the, 110 degrees. The, the the it's just complete gray because of the desert, because of the sand,
1: the haze. And
0: I just remember working up workups are just practice all the time. And you know, I was a navigator, and we we're kind of doing this thing, and 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 and, and I said, you know. Kind of the plan is we had all these different helicopters. You had marine helicopters, you had some army helicopters, you had these old kind of air force helicopters, a bunch of navy helicopters. People are practicing, and I kind of said the, what the plan is. Said, so well, you need lift capacity to kind of we're going to go out, and we're going to fly these things essentially from New York to Kansas, to Kansas City. They're going to meet, rendezvous, get refueled, and then do a then do a treetop. You know, for another, I don't know, three or four hundred miles into Tehran, they're going to have Navy special forces or Army commanders in there that get, round get the get the hostages, and you're going to, you know, go in. and Carter's been the saying that they have to have enough lift capacity to guarantee that everybody can come out.
1: Yeah, hold on a second. I'm but, just a junior just,
0: officer, and just, I'm sitting there doing some math. Give and me
1: say, one. Give me one second, Steve. So, you're talking about Operation Eagle Claw, at this yeah. point. Yeah. And you. We're a part of operation eagle claw
0: i was I was a grund dune to a grund dune. i'm on a, I'm on a destroyer that's a part of our mission is very simple. We're there to protect the carrier to make sure that no right. Soviet, so the Soviets were all the Russian Navy was all over this. The chock-a-block. We, they're
1: chock-a-block. they're there. Said, they're there when this is happening
0: and they you know we if you look at our Spruance class, we got a a five inch fifty four and some missiles and some radar and it's you know we're very sophisticated. We got submarines and nuclear weapons, and everything like that. But the Russians have got a ship that's chock a block with radars, guns, missiles. I mean, and here's the thing: we're sitting there, and even less, a little bit got like pirates because we didn't have enough fresh water all the time to shave. You look at the Russians; they're hot racking it the whole time. And in the time, that what does not- hot
1: racking it mean?
0: Means you 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 sleep and when you get up another guy comes to your bed and sleeps while you're on watch. Wow. The Navy doesn't have that, but they or submarines have it. Surface Navy doesn't. They're they're like hot racking this. And the one thing I remember about this Russians and you're <laughs> sitting there, and they're all out uh, during the day in 110 degrees in the slate gray sky that's nothing but dust. They're in, they're in thong, they're in thong, like you know, wow. they're in speedos. Sexy. With, with the, hold it, with the, with the thing, with the getting the most sun. These guys are like sun worshipers, right? They all come, I guess, from Siberia. So,
1: <laughs> but but did they have to throw the thong at you? Don't you think that was like psychological warfare, where the Russians just come out and pra- parade in thongs? Because I would have given up. I personally would have like thrown myself overboard.
0: Yeah, no, they're all in speedos. They're all sitting there with the thing with the, you know, like in Miami Beach, getting the the sun, the thing with the sun, and not just that. These radars, they're they're laying all over the decks on the gun mounts, and these radars are 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 spinning, and some of them are fire control radars. They're getting like zap, z, z- Yeah, <laughs> oh, I have brain tumors. Turns they, out not good. They don't care. They're just a different. It's a different breed of so, cat. So so while yeah,
1: we're while we're. We're preparing for this operation, and we actually execute the operation. The Russians are right there within eyesight of you. You yeah. could see them. They could see you. Yeah. They could see us. prepare. I mean, that's, wow. I mean, that's, that's. That's the surface Navy, and they had. And you have no, no idea what's under the water.
0: They had Vuku submarines around, too. The key thing, though, was actually going into the Persian Gulf, yeah. which we did. We, wrote, we rotated out before the assault. But to go into the Persian Gulf, and that was just a shooting gallery because you had you're going to have picket ships go up there with anti anti, you know, air uh, missiles, and that's you're just you're just in a shooting gallery. That's why when you hear Bolton these guys talking about putting carriers up there, it's just insane. Once you go through the Straits of Hormuz, you're basically locked in.
1: Yeah, you're yeah. tight. You're there.
0: It's a shooting gallery. So and, that's and the
1: operation that? itself, as you had indicated was very far flung for helicopters, right? That you had to you had to go find a C-130 from the distance of New York to Kansas. And as I understand it, there were, you needed six for the operation. They planned for eight just in case some shit went down. Some shit went down. And you ended up with five by the time you got to that. that yeah, that's
0: Look, as a junior officer, it's called Foreign Object Debris FOD. This air is nothing but sand. Yeah. Right? Fine sand. It just right. if you gonna if you if the you do the math, if I need lift capacity to take 52 guys off, and that lift capacity is I need eight to get there. I gotta start with a hundred. Remember they had this whole thing, it was called blue light. We didn't have JSOC at the time. There was no JSOC and all that came out of the debacle and the in at Desert One. Right. And the reason was we weren't organized for commando raids. Remember, our commandos kind of came from Mount ba- Mountbatten in World War II. His commando groups. We had the First Army Ranger Battalion. Mm-hmm. You know, Darby's Rangers. That was our really first commando unit. But it never really got even developed in Vietnam. yet. had Special Forces, but they weren't. They didn't really think like commandos or like that. All came out of the debacle. We weren't prepared for this type of war. We were prepared for a big war with the Russians in the North German Plain. Right. Right. Prepared or for, or a, for a big
1: theater. For- a big theater of war. Uh, the yeah. kind of broadsword effect rather than a scalpel that was needed yeah. here. And what people don't really understand about this is they think they think a helicopter went down on the way to Tehran to pick up the hostages. But the reality is the mission was already scrapped. The mission was well,
0: already the thing is They had to refuel. Remember, part of the drills tr- you had to get up. You got to Kansas. Yeah. and I know. my But you basically got to Kansas City. You had to refuel.
1: Right. And they, that's where it happened. It
0: yeah. crashed in the refueling. It was the refueling because it was the middle of the night. It's the desert. It's it's right. this is you know, Carter, it's just in these a junior officer, the one thing it always left the impression of me, and this stayed all the way to the White House, is the reality on the ground is totally different yep. from what it looks like in Washington. That's DC. right. I'm sure Carter and these guys were getting reports up the chain of command of what looks like more organized. It looks like it's got more rationality to it. But when you're there as a junior guy, um, you're seeing the world in a very different, you know, I'm seeing it from the A-gang officer. And or this from inf- a, and
1: officer. this informed yeah. you at that time.
0: It, and it was one of those things like the being the paper boy and you just see people talking one thing, but every day you're seeing, oh, it's 150,000 troops. We're winning, but now we're putting in 200,000 troops. Right. We're winning, yeah. but we're putting in 300,000 troops. It, there's just a disconnect between what is said and what reality is, and you can never get away from, and one thing you always got to remember is the reality of, look, that's later in the White House, like in Afghanistan. You know, um, uh, McMasters is out with this book now, and and and, and he did, on Morning Joe today, he said, I think, great things about the president. I think he shocked him.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but McMasters <laughs> and I talk every day on Afghanistan. And, you know, I just, I'm not a big believer in what's, you know, after 19 years, you know, longer combat history than Whoa. the revolution. So, I want to I, I yeah.
1: talk about that. I do want to talk about Afghanistan, but uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I saw, uh, uh, general McMaster as well. And I think he's a good guy for my part. I, I spoke at, at a conference he was at, uh, last year. And it's funny, you know, the conversations you have in the men's room. <laughs> so it I after I gave my, my speech on China. So he was already very interested and fine with who I was and we're in there and, uh, He's talking about how our aircraft carriers are becoming obsolete, yes, and i'm I'm hearing this from McMaster, and I'm thinking we're building more of them. We have more than the rest of the world combined, and we're building more, and you're saying this guy's saying they're becoming obsolete uh and it was a pretty interesting piss I took um thinking about that <laughs> <laughs> uh and I talked to him later at the, uh, at the bar dinner, and, and, yeah, I mean, like you, like you were talking about, your destroyer is there with the battle group, really, to protect an aircraft carrier. And there's, there's dozens of ships that are doing this.
0: You're, you're, you're basically protecting uh, an air wing to get across the beach, right, both at- attack aircraft right. and fight aircraft. Which you so can't you-
1: do anymore. Which you just can't do anymore with precision-guided missiles. Uh, and I and I think he was kind of saying that I don't know if, you know, that's in his book and I don't care. I was there. But it's it's an interesting thing. The money what we're spending our money on to support thing, the, the industrial would, military complex.
0: The thing I would tell you to, 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 to remember is that the, the Chinese, because remember, they're trying to do McKinder's geopolitics of, of unite who controls the heartland of Asia, the pivot of Asia controls the world the island. If you control the world island, you basically are a hegemon Can control the world, along with speakmans, force everybody off of, you know, the hinterland or the, the rimland, force people off the rim of Asia, back out to right. something with with uh, Mahan, which is the world, the British, the the naval choke points. They're doing all three at one time. They would
1: like to contest us in our hemisphere, not in their hemisphere.
0: Well, they will contest us in our hemisphere. Look at the yeah. Caribbean, look at the Bahamas. I mean, well, they're I mean, contesting I mean, us in our hemisphere. They're that, ch- that is CC- the
1: that is the Belt and Road policy, Steve. That is the Belt and Road policy. They but- are
0: fantastic. Don't shortchange the carrier. It's much more difficult today to protect the carrier battle group, but it doesn't, I don't think, takes away the utility of the carrier battle group. The carrier battle group is still the best way for the most force projection you can have without having to send in big army, right? If you If you're going to leave the area of special forces Uh And commando raids and things like that, and actually get into something that gets people's attention, right? And I'm not listen. I think kinetic war is the last era in the quivery Yeah, well,
1: look, it it gets your attention, and it 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 is the most serious uh, uh, kind of um, visual sight coming into a war theater there is, until it isn't, Steve. And I and I think I think we're getting there, but backing up to uh, where you were with Carter now. I think my opinion is this, among other things, but this may be centrally cost Carter the election. This debacle, which was in 1980 going into his election and then he had Anderson jumping in and this really dynamic Reagan showing up. It cost Carter the election because it was such a colossal fuck up. Uh, and I'll tell you, I'm going to give I'm going to give. President Barack Obama a compliment here and, and say I was Really impressed That he went after bin laden With a lot of Pushback from what they say now I don't know if This is them trying to give him Extra credit where you know Secretary Clinton and, and You know Panetta and everybody said no 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 don't do it But going into the election For his second term He pulled the trigger on Going and getting bin laden and that could have been the end of him. Did you agree with that?
0: I I definitely agree. Look, I think his bigger thing was to pivot to Asia. But yeah, I think I think going after Bin Laden, which other people had, had the opportunity, and uh, they particularly blew it at Torobor and some other places. Oh, I think well, Clinton was, blew
1: it. I mean, but, you
0: yeah, know, back but in the there, day. Like, uh, Clinton, no, at Tora Bush blew. Remember Tora He did too. A,
1: he did too. But there was before that, we had several occasions with him.
0: Military, yeah, Clinton waved off a couple of times in the 90s. He had yeah. him dead to rights at a couple of Falcon hunting, yeah. you know, things. He didn't want to kill other other princes of other Gulf Emirates, which I wouldn't have given a shit about.
1: No, who but, fucking cares?
0: Um, the, 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 the Bush had him, you know, after the horse soldiers took Kandahar. Uh, in what, 45 days. Yeah. He had a, they had him boxed up in Torah right. and let him slip out to Pakistan. So no, I thought, look, I think President Obama uh, did a lot of things of smart. I think the things that that actually got away from him in foreign policy was his handler, Joe Biden. Remember, the, the status of forces agreement for Iraq was supposed to be Biden's to negotiate. He blew that. The pivot, big thing was the pivot to Asia. President Obama understood one thing, Dan, that you know more than better than anybody how important china is yeah Maybe.
1: he well i don't, you know look he may have understood it but look i i want always always wanted to be an obama fan from the day he was elected uh i was a big john mccain fan so that that is in all honesty who i voted for uh in spite of sarah palin who gave me heart palpitations going right up to that day See, but, I'm, a
0: huge, I'm a huge sarah palin fan i think um, McCain's a stiff. Oh, that's... well,
1: I'd love to change my mind, but I can't stand her. Uh, and did you call McCain a stiff? Total stiff. Total oh, stiff. wow, man. Drop the gauntlet. Shots have been fired. <laughs> uh, I Look, let's not derail this, but I love the guy. I always did. I thought he fought back against his party or any other party for what he thought was right. And, and sometimes he was wrong, but he did the one thing that nobody does today and he would compromise with with the other party to get things done, and he was a very profane yeah, man. I love, I love that he was a profane man.
0: Compromise with the other party to get their things done. Yes, he was very good at that. Okay. He had a great track record. That'll,
1: that'll be our party. next. That'll be our next show. We will bring our fifty calibers and we'll go at it. But having said that, I the day that Obama was elected, I was very proud, and you know our first minority president was elected, and I wanted to be very supportive of him. I always did. And I never understood some of the really shitty criticism he got when actually his policies were open for great criticism, including the pivot to Asia, which was done in a half measure. It, 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 he didn't really fully pivot to Asia. Do you believe he fully pivoted to Asia? I
0: want to make I want to take his defense. I think he wanted to get what I call get out of Sencom. The Sencom mentality has just is ossified American foreign policy. That's why McMaster's, you know, all the, remember all those guys that are now three and four star generals all came in as like, you know, second lieutenants yeah. or, or they were all, you know, the whole yeah. thing has been crafted around CENTCOM. They have a CENTCOM mentality. and This is why McMaster's is prepared to bleed us out, you know, in Afghanistan forever. He said on 60 minutes the other night, I I, I think we ought to be there till sustainable, but that'll
1: be in like, you know, no, that'll be never, that'll be never.
0: Obama understood because Obama's a smart guy. I got to pivot and, and and start to figure out this. China's got to be number one because they're running the tables on us. Yeah. But he, remember, why is Biden there? Obama runs as an anti-war populist and upsets the machine that that yeah. controls the Democratic Party. That's he the voted, against the
1: he voted against the war. He voted
0: against the war. Voted against the war. He was a fire-breathing populist against the Wall Street faction of the Democratic Party. You know that was the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC. That they're all, you know, they're all Wall Street guys and corporate guys, and that's what represents the Clintons. <laughs> and he beats that. And they got to put a babysitter. The babysitter they put in is the guy that's on the the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He controls that, and he's from Wilmington, Delaware. He's the concierge for the uh, post office box drop for the global corporations. corporations yeah, one yeah. Joe Joe Biden.
1: Credit card companies,
0: and a credit card company, the whole thing. So Biden, Biden, he and Biden's mandate is to kind of take foreign policy and get things out, get the status of force agreement, blows that. But most importantly, it's a pivot to Asia. Yep. Biden is supposed to be the guy that's all over the pivot to Asia. And he completely, I mean, at the end of the day- Well, what somebody Obama
1: fucked did. it up. That's for he, sure.
0: Well, I think it's more than, it's more than fucked it up. I think he's compromised. I think if you look at his track record, look, at the end of the day, their their pivot to Asia was to forward deploy one brigade of Marines to Darwin, exactly. Australia. Exactly. Was it? But worse, it was to buy into this concept of the Thucydides trap. The framing device is the problem. Because if you buy into the Thucydides trap, let me go back to my time in the Navy. The same guys that ran the same scam, it's it's Graham Allison and Henry Kissinger. They're the two big nuclear theorists, right, out of Harvard. Yeah. This whole Thucydides trap thing is a scam that was run back in the late 60s and 70s. The Soviet Union was a rising power. Their command economy was much better than ours. Their military is much better. That's why you have to have detente. That's why you have to have salt. That's why you have to have rapprochement. That's why you have to have glass. All this stuff, compromise, because, you know, we're they're at they're the rising power. We're the declining power, right? And we got to compromise. This is Henry Kissinger, and Graham Allison. They run this whole deal, and it's Carter's. You know, and Zigby Brzezinski, this complete weakness, even kind of from Nixon, that this kind of total surrender and we got to get along. And then this guy Reagan comes along and they go, Hey, what's your strategy? He goes, Hey, how about this? We win, they lose. So when Reagan first takes over, he gets a deal guy, you know, Bill Casey, who's a guy can change a nine-dollar bill into threes. Okay. He's a Wall Street, you know, operator. He becomes head of CIA. And they have this guy, Andy Marshall, who's called Yoda. He's a guy that runs a group called the Net Assessment Group over in the Pentagon. And they do this assessment. They take away and kind of do a reassessment of the Soviet economy. And they come back and they go, oops, there's been a mistake. The Soviet economy is only half the size that we thought it was. Not, not a 5% miss. For it's the size of
1: California.
0: And, and that's when Reagan goes, well, what size is it? They go, well, it's about the size of California. And Reagan goes... Hey, I understand what these guys are. Man, we fear them. But that, what's what's going on here? That was the beginning of economic war. The Reagan Defense right. Plan which essentially which never is, got done. Which is they what China
1: something. is perpetrating on us: economic war.
0: Well, what what he did is they broke the back. Even the CAA assessments. I at that time was a special assistant to Admiral Tom Hayward,
2: yeah.
0: uh, a chief of naval operation. I come off sea duty. I was at the Pentagon, so yeah. I had a I had a ringside seat as a junior officer. Of the Reagan war against the Soviet Union, and it was amazing, and 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 it was economic. Tell us war. about it. Well, it was it was to take these. There was a there was a effort to take the Soviets on. There was not not going to be any more backpedaling, and also no more adventurism. I remember that the Reagan guys uh, or people really wanted to. Some guys wanted to get involved in like Central America immediately, and the military sitting there going, no, 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 we just got to Vietnam. We don't need another adventure right now. So it was um, the Reagan people were very serious. And this, I mean, is that's where, where I got.
1: this is where maybe it switched for you politically from maybe Democrat to Republican. Is that is that is that yeah. fair?
0: Never been a Carter. I'd never been a Carter guy. I'd always been a pro military. So I was always kind of a Nixon guy. And and, uh, you know, at the end, because he seemed to me that he had a plan, at least a fight. And, and to confront the the Russians, uh, yeah, I went in the Navy. Obviously, well, I
1: mean, in all fairness, you're you're either Ford or Carter, not Nixon.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Nixon Ford is kind of an afterthought. I don't think I, to me, Ford's a guy. that's just kind of an interregnum. Yeah, but no, okay. I'm a huge Reagan guy because Reagan really stood for, you know, he was, he was a He's also a former Democrat. It's kind of like my yeah. my, my database. He's kind of a former working class Democrat, FDR Democrat, who's you know pro military and and no, I, so I was really proud. I showed up the day of his. Inauguration was my first. I went to the inauguration, and I show up the next day. Just a a short story. This this tell you. So when I get these orders, I'm in the I'm in the North Arabian Sea, and a guy flies out to interview me. And uh and and, you know they said this before to be one of the special assistants to the to the Chief Naval Operations. So I'm not Academy. I'm not ROTC, uh, but I've had a pretty good run. And then the guy leaves. I think, hey, he's a detail. I'll never see this guy again. And months later I get a tell you know, I get the message traffic that I got the job. So I call the guy that I'm supposed to relieve. And we have a couple of conversations, you know, from my ship. And the last time I talked to him, he says, how many suits do you have? And I go, what? He says, how many suits do you have? And I go, well, actually, technically I don't have any suits. I got my dress blues and my service whites, yeah. but I was kind of a college kid and I had a suit. I don't know if it fits anymore. But it wasn't really even it was kind of a suit to go to funerals, but I'm not so sure I got a suit. And he goes, Well, you gotta pick up a couple of suits. And I go, Well, what are you talking about? You're the special assistant to the chief of naval operations. I got my dress blues, I got my whites, what else do I need? Got my khakis. He said, No, Party you need
2: that
0: He says you need you need you're gonna need four or five suits. So I called around and people said, Yeah, they, the the Carter administration thought there were too many military guys. That everybody in the Pentagon wears suits four days a week, and I go, "Are you kidding me?" So I go, and I go, I go, and you know, I, I, in Hong Kong, I think I got a suit. and I got some, you know, Joseph Bank suits, and just thought I was like, you know, just amazing. I was ready for, you know, I was Gordon Gecko, right? I had some Joseph Bank suits for a hundred bucks. So um, the very first day after Reagan's inauguration, I show up and I'm in a suit to be the, in the, the Admiral Hayward, I think, was. Uh oh. And and, no, we're all in suits. And I'm just sitting there going, this is the most bizarre thing, because everybody, every military officer buys bad suits, right? They're all bad suits. And I'm sitting there, and uh, at 5 o'clock comes out from Casper Weinberg, the secretary of defense, that said, like, general order number one, tomorrow at 6 a.m., everybody's in the uniform of the day. And they laid out what it was I go, thank It turns out Weinberger shows up that morning after the inauguration, like five in the morning for his first day as secretary of defense. And um, he shows up and he's wondering why everybody's in a bad suit. And he said, well, Carter kind of said years ago that we should wear suits like four days a week. And he was gonna send everybody home. He said, fuck this, I want you guys in your uniform. And uh, but that took place, and the next day we were in uniform. I and that uniform. that
1: that really kind of sets the stage. This is different.
0: This is different. we well, this is serious. We don't yes. you know, we 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 had, we respect the military. Uh, we 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 want the military. Uh, you know we appreciate the military. You're not some afterthought. Um, it's still, by the way, in the in the in the White House. This is uh, with McMaster's. Uh, McMaster's wore suit most of the times. You go to the National Security Council. Most of the military officers. Are, are in suits a lot of the times there's really? still this kind of even around the white house that you don't want too many guys in the uniform which i i don't agree with but that's still a mentality the guys on the national security council will wear civilian attire you know the 60 minutes thing the other night had uh, mcmasters when he was in the oval and in the west wing every shot i think of him on 60 minutes showed him in civilian attire when he was still an active duty uh three-star so um it's uh, still in the tab, but no, but the Reagan years were, I was there for a couple of years under President Reagan and as a junior, as a dune, I just learned so much. One thing I learned is I wanted to go to Harvard, because all the guys made decisions, every guy making a decision, either going to Harvard Law School or Harvard Business School. So I determined pretty quickly that, uh, you know, I love the military, but I didn't think I'd get much sea duty. Uh, you know, in the future, and the decision makers were all, you know, Weinberger was Harvard Law, and all the guys seem to be either Harvard Law guys or Harvard Business guys. So, I went to Harvard Business School from there.
1: Yeah, you went. You well, you went to Georgetown, and and you had yeah. a degree there, actually.
0: I, I wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to learn more about the theory of war and the kind of the intellectual framework of how decisions are made in the process of because every day I'm living it. And Georgetown had a program. I think it was put together by Gene Kirkpatrick. Uh, at the School of Foreign Service that you had professionals. You had guys on the Hill, the mm-hmm. CIA at the agency's defense department. There's really professionals to get a master's degree in national security studies. And you had to be a, you had, it couldn't just be some kid coming into a graduate school. You had to be a working professional. And we did it on nights and weekends. So, I mean, I was working and you know, I'd get there at like five in the morning to 10. It was, it was probably the toughest grind I've ever had in my life for two or three years to be the special assistant plus get a master's degree. Yeah. But it was an incredible experience. I met so many people, and I came out of there really. That was a that was a kind of a uh, a crucible. I really had a really good feel for national security policy, how it was formed. Seeing, uh, the, the, you know, I was my job was a special assistant to the CNO's executive board, which is essentially the board of directors of the uniformed navy. A highly classified job in a inside a vault. I was in a vault in a vault. So I got to see everything, the long range plans, and then had the the the, the theoretical of George and I had great, you know Dr. Ed Ludvak, Ben Adams. I mean this was a who's who of of teachers. Uh, this guy named Colonel Boyd, who came up at the time of this thing called Maneuver Warfare. Just, you know, just let alone. You just, you just, you learned under the bet. Lauren Thompson eventually was a student, eventually became head of the program. Just, I, I got to, to, to study under the best thinkers, geopolitical, particularly strategy guys. Well, it sounds
1: like Georgetown was a great time for you. It was Shatter- a, educationally.
0: Great program. And the people I was with, I was with guys from the agency, guys on the Hill.
1: Guys from the I'm, agency is what, CIA?
0: Yeah, CIA. Yeah, we're, we're not insiders,
1: Guy. Steve. You got to like <laughs> spell it out for us, dumb guys. Uh, so you went you went from Georgetown to Harvard, where you know everybody goes, right? I, I think I was there for a while. You were there for a while. Reed. Yeah, we yeah, all went yeah, to Harvard. Yeah, sure. And after Harvard, you decided to you've done enough, and now you want to do God's work. So you went to uh, you went to Goldman Sachs to to preach the gospel. Oh
0: no 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 no! I left. Look. You know, when I left the Navy, look, I was only you know, about to make lieutenant commander, but the, you know, the choice and people were saying, hey, you'll be you keep on this path, you'll be a flag officer one day or leave and go to Harvard. You're throwing away this for that. But remember, the time, hostile takeovers, M&A is really going to be starting to get big. And I realized that, hey, this this is kind of the new warfare. Right. <laughs> And 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 okay. and and True. so, but I was told if you go, you got to be like number one, or no, you got to be in the top one percent of your class. Well, Where would you finish at Harvard? I, I finished. I think I finished top. Uh, I was I was first year honors and second year honors. Uh, I think I finished like top. 3%, top 5%. I graduated what? with
1: honors. What a slacker. But I don't
0: know if I graduated with, high, I think I graduated with, high, I don't know if highest honors, I think I graduated with high honors. So no. I graduated with honors or high honors, one of the two. But it was enough. The key thing in Wall Street is all the first year. You've got to graduate. I was told, you must graduate with honors. You have to be first year honors. you your first year honors, you're bulletproof. You'll get, McKee, you'll get offers from McKinsey, Booz Allen, Bain. Bolton. All these
1: wonderful, loving companies who care about humanity.
0: Now here's what happened. This is a short story. Is that I sent all my resumes out everywhere, thinking because summer associates, everything. I go oh for thirty. I don't even get a response from anybody. I mean, I'm just like dismissed. And I'm start- I'm doing very well academically, but they come up for the interviews, and uh, I'm I'm getting like nowhere. And I go uh, I finally get one interview, with uh, I think it was Smith Barney, and I just kind of get stuffed in there. And I sit there, and there's like a 26 year old a first-year associate that's like my entry interview. And she sits there and looks at my resume and she goes, I'm I'm older, I think I'm 27 or 28 years old, right? Because I've spent like eight years in the Navy. And she looks up to me and she goes, okay, what do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> and I realized I said, wow, I, I, this is not working out. Then I go to a Dylan Reed. They have these presentations. I go to Dylan Reed, which by the way, doesn't accept me for an interview, but I'm going to all the talks just to, and there's like 50 people there. And I, and I go down afterwards and there are people around the guys giving a talk and, and, uh, and I'm just kind of hanging back and, you know, um, and, and finally kind of the crowd kind of goes away and I get the guy's attention and go, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Steve Bannon. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I wrote you a letter to get an interview as a summer associate and you, you haven't gotten back to me yet. He goes, Bannon, Bannon, Bannon. He goes, uh, Oh, are you the Navy guy? And I go, yeah. And he goes, yeah, don't have any interest. No interest.
1: Why? This is, like, what What does that it, even mean?
0: No, he just goes, yeah, 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 no interest. This is in front of like 10 people in my oh. class. I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm like, now, oh, my God, I made the biggest mistake in the world. And I'm trying to figure out how do I get out of this. And he goes, we don't have any interest. And I'm like, oh, oh. fuck. And he goes, he goes, hey, look, don't take it personally. He says, he says, you got to like talk to Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, he said. He said, they're like the Dallas Cowboys. They 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 draft for talent. He says, we don't have that choice. He says, you're some guy, you know, you're almost 30 years old. You've never worked on Wall Street. You may get here and not like it. We don't have that choice. We have to have, we only hire people that were financial analysts because we have to know people really know what they're doing and really like it. We don't have the luxury. So don't hold, take it personally. Hold no, on. So they-
1: There's an, a financial analyst. This is news to me. Knows what they're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is but this is the associates. This is not the financial analysts like in research. These are the people that come from Princeton, work for two years, and then go to Harvard Business School, Harvard Law I've School. I've never
1: met a financial analyst who knows what they're doing, but you well, know, maybe they're, you can inform they're,
0: they're, me. They're they they they're, they're pretty smart. It's, it's, but but long story short, I didn't get accepted at Goldman for an interview. I show up at the, I show up at the lecture for Goldman or their talk, and and the guy walks in, Kevin Kennedy, I eventually get to know very well. And he goes, look. We're very middle class. We're very hardworking. There's no limos outside. We're all about teamwork, all about the team. And I'm sitting there going, this is it. This is my place. This is the guys I got, they're not assholes. And so afterwards, there's a cocktail party, a reception. And there's every kid in my class at Harvard is there. So there's, you know, 800 people. They're all sucking up these guys. They all know the financial lingo. I'm sitting there going, you know, what a fuck up. I left the Navy. I'm not even gonna get really an interview. I'm not even, not only getting not get a summer associate job. I'm not even gonna get interviewed. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm talking with two other losers like myself, and we're talking baseball, Kansas City rules baseball, with two guys who were just nice guys. I th- you know, cl- George I- Brett, classmates.
1: I imagine.
0: Well, I thought they were classmates, I'm just kind of shooting the shit with them, because they're stiffs like I am. They're not in the middle of it. Nobody's sucking up to them. They're kind of hanging back, drinking a beer up to the side, and we start talking baseball, one guy's a Kansas City rules fan. Start talking. It turns out, that night, Goldman gets together, and they're going through the resumes, and I... That was John Weinberg, Jr. and Rob Kaplan. Rob Kaplan, who's the governor of the, of the Federal Reserve Board in Dallas, who eventually ran Goldman's high Yield group as one well, of the senior. There was Rob Kaplan and John Weinberg, Jr. I think they were first-year associates. It was the first time they'd been to Harvard recruiting. They didn't know what to do, so they're just hanging back. I thought there were two classmates of mine. I'm just shooting the shit, and the so my thing comes up, and they go, hey, this Bannon's a good guy. And they go, well, he's too old. Don't have, a, you know, we don't have time for him. They go, no, let's put him in here. They call me up, and I just kind of go down. They did the interviews at the Ritz-Carlton at the time. I just kind of wandered down there. The next day, I show up, and and they put me in the process, and they give me a summer associate's job. I got a job in corporate in the investment banking corporate finance group, working on MA transactions, and I got an offer at the end of the summer. I never, I never interviewed. You know, I had McKinsey and. Bane in these guys because all they want, they don't care what you are. They just want if you're first year honors or second year honors. They just want the resume. They gave you know they wanted to recruit me and everything like that. But Goldman had a great summer. They gave me an offer at the end of the summer. I accepted it and never talked to anybody else. So it was it was pure serendipity. It's one of those things that happens yeah. in life. If I had not sat with those two guys, there's zero chance I would have ended up at Goldman Sachs. I'd have been at Boston Consulting Group or. Maybe Morgan Stanley, my second year or something like that, but not not Goldman. It was just Man, and
1: that it... job changed your life in so many ways, like so many ways. Like uh, we'll get into that a little bit more. But Goldman Sachs, you went into M and A, mergers and acquisitions, which I think has you know uh, gone crazy over the last twenty years and and hurt our country more than it's helped our country. I mean, we have no regional identity anymore. Uh, You if you just look at department stores, right, you can shop at Macy's or you could shop at Macy's. Um, There was a time where somebody carrying a Marshall Fields bag around in Chicago meant something or they would travel to Chicago just to get a Marshall Fields bag. And and it seems to me like same thing with airlines. You could say the same thing with airlines or or anything else. Insurance companies, banks, regional banks. You could say the same thing. And it seems like more the more oneness we have the more MA we have the more uh, things that we have that are the same we start to hate each other for our differences now
0: yeah i mean at the time it was different at the time it was uh we were all re- we were actually trying to defend those companies this was a big re- industrial reorganization i remember one of the guys mac heller who was the brilliant guy who was a couple of years ahead of me uh said that the river of history runs deep through this department, and I didn't understand it because I was always a history guy. I go, "What do you mean this is Wall Street?" He goes, "No, th- we're going to basically reorganize post-industrial America." Mm-hmm. I go, "Wow!" And uh, you know, this is right when Microsoft was going public, all these companies. But my job I had twofold. Number one was raid defenses. This was Mike Milken and the and really the the so- sophisticated financial engineering of the hostile takeover business. So you were
1: fighting off the Mike Milkins.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fighting off the of Mike Milkins. Goldman Sachs' business was raid defense. We had a thing we would never do a hostile takeover.
1: Wow. Take- okay, so I totally had that wrong. You were on the opposite end of that.
0: Well, no, because there was a the buku, you know, it was a ton of money to be made in hostile defenses. We defended everybody. And, and you had Milken coming after these companies. You had all these guys coming. You know, Bruce Wasserstein would represent the hostile takeover. So
1: Icon I mean, was we- around back then too, right? Who was? Icon.
0: Yeah, Carl Icahn, Herb Jacobs, all of them. That's the beginning of the... the, the, And Icahn was kind of a a marginal player back then. He became much bigger later on, but this was the beginning of the whole hostile takeover in the 1985 to the mid-'90s, late-'90s, and and Goldman was raid defense. So I had two businesses. Number one, I was a junior guy on these raid defenses, and also because I was a little older and had some presence, I, I got into going out with VPs like John Thornton at the time and... And pitching exclusive sales of entrepreneurs' companies. So I had a, both an entrepreneur part where I would sell companies for 50 to $500 million in uh, controlled auctions and 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 doing raid defense as part of a bigger team that was much more complicated. And so I got a tremendous experience. But you saw where on these raid defenses, I mean, you were looking at the pension funds, you were looking at selling every real, all the real estate of shipping the jobs out to Mexico and keeping the marketing here was a... It was a time of deindustrialization. This is pre-China coming over. This was just, and look, a lot of these companies were very uh, stuffy. A lot of these companies had not really thought through, uh, you know, how to really run as an efficient organization. This is also the rise of something I learned at Harvard, which was this, I I call it kind of a fetish, or, or this became kind of high church theology, was the maximization of shareholder value. I think it was a couple of guys in Rochester that came up with this idea, but it became yeah. part of what became the financialization of Wall Street, that everything could be everything could be taken back to the net present value of the stock price at that moment. Right, Nothing right. mattered. There where, no where
1: we are markets. today. This is where we are today.
0: Yeah. It, it, I don't think it's quite as bad today as it got at the height of it, but probably in the mid-90s to late-90s. And it started in the early 80s to mid-80s, but this... Concept that everything is gets back to the net present value. Oh, that's
1: we we could, we could debate that when we're, we're not just like focusing on you. One day, you and I can we'll get back to John McCain and this issue. But go ahead.
0: No, but that's I mean that was my life for you know six or seven years until I realized I joined Goldman because I loved it and I saw that it was starting to change and get ready to go public. And when it became public, it would be like Citibank or anything else. So I, I left and formed my own firm. With Goldman guys.
1: Well, now, they, now, how you did this? What, first of all, you you went into Goldman, and you said, um, well, I guess the sex, drugs, and rock and roll maybe weren't happening so much back then. They were a private company, um, but
0: not you, Goldman you, Goldman was Goldman Goldman at that time was a private partnership. It's very it right. pretty it was white
1: glove back then, huh? They were
0: well. I remember first, Boston and Morgan Stanley were kind of the uh, the the awfully awfully establishment institution. Goldman was kind of the scrapper. That was at the time, uh, but we didn't. It was a very, very, very rigid social system inside. Wow. Uh, no, no no, partying, no, or some guys did, but it was martial. It was, it was very much a middle class, very much a, look. Let me, let, me, Sachs, let me just
1: tell you, Steve, I have it on good authority.
0: My first three years at Goldman Sachs, I took off three days, Christmas Day each year.
1: Well, I, I, have, worked. I have it on good authority that right after you left, they started snorting coke off hookers' asses, so.
0: No, what, but that's one of the reasons, look, I'm not a Puritan, but one of the reasons that you could tell there's going to be a shift in the culture because they're getting ready to go public. It was just a different, it was a different time. I think, yes, I think a lot of the partying and things like that came as part of the fact that you're not joint and severally liable to remember the partners at Goldman Sachs when I was there, every fairness opinion and every IPO, every partner.
1: to them personally.
0: Yeah. Liability for yeah. If you go to take a fairness opinion, and had guys like Peter Sachs and these guys running these commitment committees and go going, they would, you know, you, you would, it would be, a, it's a proctology exam, yeah, right, because well, they're the ones, they're, it's their dicks on the anvil. Well, okay? I,
1: I am doing another show at some point, strictly on the death of corporate governance in the United States, which we have none of, with so-called independent board of directors or board of directors, where people back then, like you're saying. Their name meant something. Them signing something meant something. It means nothing now. But for you, and where you're concerned, you decided to go where it were, where it was going to be more stuffy and a little more conservative Hollywood. <laughs> 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 so, okay, you 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 decide to well before actually you made you made a a quick stop before Hollywood to the biosphere, right?
0: No, 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 I, I it's what happened is uh Nishoe a Japanese trading company, came to me, approached me and another guy in, in the nine nineteen ninety, uh or late eighty nine, about they wanted to get into the they wanted to start putting capital work in intellectual property. And I had started to specialize in my last couple couple of years on understanding intellectual property and working on restructuring of media companies and uh and, uh, and entertainment companies, et cetera, that Goldman were doing restructurings for, et cetera. And I realized that intellectual property was kind of the future that the, the hard assets that these had, uh, you know, although t- more a little more difficult to, to value at the time, actually had more value than hard assets like capital equipment or real estate. And so um, I got to be an expert, and they came, and so what we did is form really an investment bank in in Beverly Hills and with a branch in New York backed by this uh, trading company, Nisho Y, that was uh, the specialized in intellectual property, In and essentially we did tons of bankruptcy work, tons of restructuring, tons of film finance. We kind of were the best guys at the time. We worked on a ton of Goldman deals, where Goldman yeah. at the time didn't either want the liability or wanted somebody else that could value the stuff. We worked on Berlusconi, a lot of the big restructuring that Goldman had in Europe and other places, Samsung in Korea, we were the we were the wingman that were the specialists they could bring in that had a had a thing and it turned out the biosphere was basically an assignment by the Bass family. They went out to talk to investment banks about intellectual property. That the son had put in a quarter of a billion dollars at the time, which back in, in the, what year? And and he had put that money in from eighty eight I think
1: to ninety a quarter billion dollars in eighty eight.
0: This was if, hardcore early stage venture capital. This was real money and what they wanted to do was somebody could tell them what the intellectual property was. And so we got assigned basically to, we, we got, we did MGM, we did Polygram, we did, we did probably 50 bankruptcies, MGM being the biggest, we rolled up 30 film companies. The biosphere was just a bankruptcy. It turned out that they needed, uh, they, they basically also hired us as interim management for a year, year and a half. Um, to restructure it. And this is where I learned about climate change and global warming. Well, the, what's your,
1: what's your thought on that? Are you, are you, Oh God, don't, don't answer this wrong. I'm, uh, 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 we're going to have our third, you know, next show here. Are you a climate denier?
0: Here's what I am is that i worked in the early nineties with the father of climate, of global warming and climate change, yeah. Dr. Wally Groker of Lamont doherty which is the earth observatory at Columbia university. They're the guys that found El Nino. He, if you look him up, he just passed away here a couple about six months ago or something. He was a fabulous guy with Mike Crow. And those are the guys I did the deal with to take over the biosphere yeah. to turn it into a cyclotron for the study of the earth for climate change. Here's what I, I know is that it is um, it's really a set of math that you really got to get in back of. It's 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 i I'm not a climate denier. Good at any means. However, it's Good. not as most as people put forward. And here's what I know it's the it's the kind of astrophysicists or the physicists that think everybody else is a poet, right? They think that the colleges, they think even guys like Wally Broker are not, are not the hardcore mathematicians. And if you meet Will ha- ha- Happer uh, that, you know, came into the uh, National Security Council later, one of the professors at Princeton that's the biggest denier because of the math. If you meet some of these guys, I think they make some pretty compelling arguments about how we don't really totally understand it. So... Well, I don't know
1: that we totally understand it. I don't know that everybody who believes in climate change uh, totally understands. Or even like I don't for my part, I don't really give a fuck if it's man-made or cyclical. It's what can we do as as a human race, as we have how we've evolved to fix it, to do things that change the way that we interact with the one planet that we have. And, look, I'm not, I'm not doing the AOC thing where, like, we need to stop flying planes right now unless she needs to go somewhere. Uh, I, I'm saying that there needs to be a plan for incremental change where we're not necessarily supporting fossil fuels and we start to shift that support toward greener energy. And is that what you saw back when you were at Biosphere?
0: It, what I saw was people. The, the argument came down to you know big changes that drive, like the, the sun, sunspots, these type of cycles you go through just because you're going to go through them because we're the Earth's position in the in the solar system and other places versus is it how much of it's man-made? And even at the time, there was a pretty big debate. Look, I'm all for a thousand percent. That's why I've been a big believer in things like nuclear energy and others that you know mm-hmm. reduce uh, the burn of, of carbon. Right, so it's but a lot of it came. A lot of I don't know if it's my skepticism. It's just that it's a lot more complicated than you think. Because we brought in, if you go back and look at the groups that we brought in for the conferences and symposiums and seminars to get a handle about what the biosphere could actually do, so that the Bass family would have something that uh, they could be proud of, which they are. You know, thirty years later, twenty five years later, it's part of the University of Arizona. Uh, the uh, the Columbia ran it for ten years. Uh, and then pass it on to University of Arizona. It's, you go out there, there's experimentation going all the time. Um, but it, w- those initial seminars that we brought in everybody from NASA, the Kew Gardens, to the top guys at Santa Fe Institute, um, it's it's a complicated topic, and there's a wide divergence of opinion within the top scientists, Wally Broker and the guys at Lamont-Darty. They're kind of like these Jesuits up on the Hudson, mm-hmm. right, that that run this Earth observatory. Um, uh, that, and they run Woods Hole, too, I think. That, that is, um, you know, it's, it's a complicated topic, and uh, but it's, I got a real training on that for a couple of years I, as I was running my investment bank, but as part of a bankruptcy process, also, you know, overseeing kind of the management of this thing as we brought in professionals at Lamont, Darty, Columbia, and other places to run it.
1: Well, I'm keeping a scorecard here, and so far, like myself, you are a pretty awful Republican. Uh, I mean, you believe in climate change. I'm a
0: populist and I'm a, I'm a I'm a economic nationalist. So
1: yeah, well, well, you know, we can talk about that, but you know, some of this other rich history, like the biosphere, and um, I, I think one of the questions we had from our audience is did did you actually hire Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin for that movie?
0: So it's worse. The, the movie is not the one that gets me. The the whole reality TV came out of this Big Brother. Remember yeah. when I first got there, they were still doing the second experiment. We wanted to shut it down because we thought the human experiments were just a waste of time. And uh, but really, I think it was the Dutch company came in. Big the whole beginning of reality TV. Pauly right. sure those guys were just kind of a goof on the on the on the project. But people realized that those humans living together, right, were like the things of the islands today, and and guys, you know, living in the survivor show.
1: Yeah, that's but the real danger.
0: That all came out of that all came out of. Uh, the guys looking at the biostar that first mission where they all lived together and they turned on each other and there were different factions and you know they hated each other and you know some got married the others wanted to kill each other. That all, I missed all that. I did that that completely you know being Mr. Intellectual Property. I didn't see that as a
1: well, as you, a, You moved real- on from there and you pe- people may not know you produced eighteen Hollywood movies and and, and part of your M and A deals. You did a deal once, where you waived your fee for the deal to get a percentage of five different sitcoms, one of them being Seinfeld.
0: Let, let me let me be let me make sure you get understand this. We didn't I, it, we didn't voluntarily <laughs> waive anything. Oh, cool. Well, what happened? It was uh, we were selling, I think, uh, Castle Rock.
1: Yeah, it was Castle uh, yeah.
0: Rock. At the same time guys were selling New Line, this was Ted Turner was putting together, he's gonna to buy MGM and put together a huge movie studio. And as Ted was want to do, he was a little short of cash. So when it came time to actually close the transaction,
1: and he could always make that shit happen, couldn't he?
0: He wanted people to take stock or all kind of stuff, and, and the client just wanted to the Westinghouse group wanted to cash out. So long story short, you know, we did an analysis to them of of they were gonna have be able to participate in payments. And the client basically said, "Hey, if you guys are so brilliant, you think this is so good for us, we want you to defer your cash fee and just take it all in participation." Well, you know, I couldn't. I needed cash, some cash to kind of run the overhead and make sure people would get paid at the end of the year. So we did. We did a deal where we took, we valued it, and it turned out we valued it one tenth what the value is. Basically, on the client's instructions, we participated with like they did in a basket of TV shows. Seinfeld being the least. At the time, you know the one because Larry David. You know it started this first year. I think last, the second year was in thirtieth place. I think by the time we were involved, it was up to close to being number one. But Larry David, the writer, who I never met, was they said this guy quits every year, so we don't know if the show's going to go. Sounds
1: like Larry David.
0: Yeah, I know the twenty episodes or not, but it turned out that the other shows they had single guy. They had I don't know five or six other shows on, plus a huge movie studio, right? That made um, you know all the Billy Crystal movies and these films. Uh which wasn't particularly profitable, but they had a lot of hit movies. It turned out that Seinfeld, and this mainly is a lesson of intellectual property. You get one thing that works, it can explode and pay for all the other goose. So you still,
1: you still get Seinfeld money to this day. You get Seinfeld checks to this day.
0: I, I can't tell you about the exact, uh, Current status of the transaction, but let's say we've been an owner for, of. Uh, and by the way, it's it's a very small ownership. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, and this guy's on the bulk. This is just something left over. Well, I, from, listen,
1: I'm I'm sure that fucking kills Jerry it, and and Larry David. Cool.
0: I think Larry David more than
1: Coach oh, Larry. I'm I'm sure Larry David just like it, it's it's the reason that uh, he he wants to annoy everybody for the rest of his life, which I find very funny. I find him very funny, but you still have an ownership stake in Seinfeld. For is him-
0: I still have an ownership stake in Seinfeld, but let's say it's been a, it's been a great ride. A lesson learned that there's a lesson learned that intellectual property can really pay off, and the guys in my firm that participated in it, I've always, have uh, always enjoyed it.
1: Well, look, your business is your business. I mean, like you know, how much money you made with that is, is your business. But like you know, how much money did you make with that? Well, <laughs> I will
0: tell you that I think Seinfeld, and those guys made. It's it's the thing that keeps on. I think they just did a Hulu deal. It has been amazing how many cycles this thing's gone through and it continues to, to sell and do, do big deals off of. So I, I'm sure Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld's not a billionaire.
1: I didn't ask you how much money he made. How much fucking money did you make? I,
0: I can't, I can't, because of, uh, because of disclosure issues. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't tell you that. But
1: yeah, well, I'm listen, you know what I do for a living. I'm gonna fucking find out. I have a particular set of skills. You do. And and i will find out i will find you and i will find out (laughs) and i will tell the world okay so you got seinfeld you produced 18 movies including indian runner with sean penn
0: i think i'm the executive producer on 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 a bunch because i raised the financing and then to to uh, you know participated and not on, on indian runner i was essentially we helped put the financing together and i participated but that we had, you know, you had real producers on. Yeah, all but did you, go,
1: did you go to oh, these? I t- really got
0: to know, you know, producing is a. Oh, I know. A, it's a real-
1: <laughs> oh, I know. I've been to Hollywood and I've learned to speak Hollywood, too, where nobody ever uses the word no. But every other word means no. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. That's a great idea. Let's talk about it at the next meeting. That actually means don't ever fucking bring it up again. Yeah. Yeah. You're a dummy.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes. 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 Yes means uh, yes means maybe, what and and, and no means uh, maybe maybe means no and no means get the fuck out of my face. Yeah, yeah, it
1: does. It does. It's 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 very much like doing business with with China actually. Yeah, similar very to much. our business, I think. Yeah. So you you did the, so you did you go to these Hollywood events like? No, never so, never did. You, so you never did because you know one thing I've noticed about you, Steve. I've seen you a few times. We've spoken at a couple of events that you happen to be at, and I've actually seen you come in and speak at an event for maybe fundraising or something with 30 or 40 people. And it, 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 it's a known thing to the, to the organizers. They might have a plate there for you uh, for decoration, but you come in, you say what you have to say, and you have zero time for chit-chat. And, and you don't care if you know... Half the people in the room and whatever, but when you're done, you don't want to chit-chat with anybody about anything.
0: No. no, I think in my entire time in Hollywood, in fact, I had a guy who what we call the hot walker. I never went to a party. I don't think I ever went to a premiere. I might have gone to one or two for a friend, but you know, I, I go to Cannes every year and never go to one party. You go so- to Cannes every year. Went to Can every year for in the 90s and uh, you know into I think into the 2000s. Never went to one party. No. It, it, no. on the inauguration, I never went to one inaugural event except the uh, except the uh, the inauguration itself. I'm just not just not me. It's just not my style. No. So,
1: I, I I've seen that, and I, personally, I don't think you can go back to Cannes without getting shot. By the way, uh, but it, it would be it would be it would
0: be it would be very interesting.
1: It would be very interesting. I sure. think your tact of not wanting to chit chat with people would be well received.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, I think it would be, I actually went to the, uh, to the Venice film festival in two, for American Dharma. Uh, they wanted me to go do media. And, uh, so I went there and I stayed, I was in the hotel, I never even went to the venue cause I didn't need to go, but I did media there for, for, for four days. But after, uh, Mike, um, the uh, Errol Morris got an eight-minute, I think, standing ovation from the audience for the film. And he's was a, it, is it because he it. blew then,
1: up the cl- Quonset hut at the end?
0: Well, then, yeah, then, yes. <laughs> then he goes up. They had like a five- or eight-minute standing ovation for him. The thing premieres at Venice, which is very prestigious. He goes up there. He's feeling great. And the critics eviscerated him. That they, 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 they didn't even talk about the movie. It said you had Satan, and you didn't nail Satan. Oh, uh, uh,
1: yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Well, I have Satan, too, and— you know, I, you know, whoever people think Satan is, whether it's you or somebody on the left that I'm just I'm really enjoying this conversation, by the way. And if anybody else who's listening to this doesn't enjoy the conversation, go fuck yourself. Go listen to something else. I don't really care. It's, it's, it's not my thing here to, to call somebody Satan, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or AOC or Michael Moore or whatever. But I want to hear this stuff that made up the life and yeah i thought american dharma sucked because there was some really interesting stuff in there that that you were talking about and then the guy's got to go fucking blow up a quonset Hunt or whatever like you said something so remember
0: he, did, he was under a lot look i love the film and actually people see it you know tell me they love it but it, it, the the problem he had he had done this was the third you know he had done mcnamara he had done rumsfeld he's
1: done good stuff
0: he, he, he figured that he took both those guys down. He was under a lot of pressure to – and he paid for it. Remember, American Dharma came out, and he got turned on because everybody said, you know, you made Bannon look too good. He let him talk about these movies, and, you know, he got cut off from his commercial business. It, you know, he he completely flipped. Now he says, oh, this guy's a racist. He just had a huge oh, article on the – okay. Uh, about is just but but look it, to me it doesn't matter it is what it is you just look at the product and I think the product turned, I think the product turned out fine but he's under I think a if lot- you
1: I think if you if you take the background away right where he starts to like he's got to always you know cut away to somebody you know rioting or, or blowing up or whatever and you just listen sure. to the words in the conversation the conversation sure. was very interesting as a matter of fact. I found it interesting. So well,
0: it's, it's interesting you say that because I we've asked them, he, he shot 20 hours or 25 hours of interviews. We've asked him just to put it up online in particularly China. I spent hours with this guy, hours and hours and hours. Because yeah. I had was uh, a guy that helped put it together and he sat there and took notes. We literally spent, I think of the 20 or 25 hours, however long it was 16 or I think it was 20 hours. I think three or four hours. We're just on China in, in excruciating detail. And in none China- of it's
1: there. And none of it's there. And you still think this is a good movie. None of that's yeah. there. And you still think this is a good movie.
0: China's got 90 seconds. Well, I think he did a, you know, a reasonable job of tying together the films and kind of my perspectives on these films. That's how he pitched me. He says, hey, what we want to do is really kind of connect the films that have had an impact on your life. And I couldn't get all of them. And I couldn't get Wild Bunch or some of the other ones. But mm. it, I think they selected of the 10 I gave him, I think six or seven films got into the thing. No. I thought that was innovative, and I thought it was an interesting conversation. He clearly had to, you know, every time you talk, yes, shit's blowing up. And I was talking about Andrew, he was obsessed with Wiener, who I thought was kind of a sideshow. Well,
1: but he's a- I, I'll tell you. I mean, look, if you want to talk about Wienergate, um, he, he is a sideshow. And for any politician, Democrat or Republican, stop taking a picture of your junk. Nobody fucking wants to see your fucking junk, Okay. Your wife doesn't want to see it. <laughs> Nobody else wants to fucking see it.
0: So I so just, part of the time actually got to see his junk, you know, in the. Yeah, uh, he,
1: he the- really cost Hillary at the end there. I mean, at the end, this asshole who was about to win as mayor of New York or whatever yeah. else he's running for congressman. What he was after everything he had done, everything he had been through was running again. He's so charismatic. Right. And so authentic at times when he's speaking. He was winning them over again, and he could not stop looking at his dick.
0: Bill de Blasio is mayor because Anthony and Wiener's junk.
1: It yeah. was Wiener,
0: <laughs> Wiener was like at 30%. I think the woman was at, at 22%. There was a black guy who was pretty good, was like 18%. I think Blasio was like at 9%. De Blasio was fourth in this race. He was fourth in that primary.
1: Yeah, and well, he was higher than I thought he should have been. Um, the woman
0: really didn't. Represent the guy didn't pull it off at the end and Blasio came in. The city has been cursed with the Blasio because of uh, Anthony Weiner's the second time on his junk. Right. right?
1: And, and I think I think it, I think it really cost Hillary at the end because that really happened in the last month. And I and I just my my heart just bleeds for Huma Abedin. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, because look, I mean, she obviously loves this guy. It's the father of her children and, and she keeps taking him back. And you've got to think to yourself, Hillary's like, well, you know, I kind of got that shit going on in my life. <laughs> and uh, Kind of. Just, just, uh, just a little bit. Let me pay it forward here <laughs> and, and help Huma out because, uh, look, you know, I know what it's like to have, you know, a world-class swordsman for a husband. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not easy. So I think that cost her. I think that was a calculated mistake on her part, and one of the many things that who knows how it lined up and, and Trump got elected. But that that be kind of becomes the issue. Uh, and I, I know you're short on time here. And you've been really, really gracious on time.
0: The issue? What becomes the issue?
1: Well, it, getting to you, where we are now, we're talking about the campaign. Yeah. Is like, where the fuck did, I mean, Steve come from? I mean, there's just Breitbart news, which I had never heard of outside of Weinergate, and and good on good on you guys for breaking that shit and and then you i guess you got andrew breitbart coincidentally shows up at a hotel where he's where wiener's holding a press conference and doesn't even know that what's going on right and yep. shows up and uh starts talking he's like oh by the way i'm you know i'm andrew breitbart and and then he goes off and gives a real Real serious performance there. I mean, and he was he
0: a press conference, which he's fabulous. Does a great job. I Total
1: guess serious. I never heard of the guy. I, I, would never, I've never even seen him since. And I know he's since passed away, but I, I'd never heard of Breitbart. And then you come into the picture and here comes, here comes <laughs> Steve Bannon, who I, who I've never actually heard of. And then there's this guy. And by the way, what's with the uniform? What, what is it with the three shirts? and the shoes and the everywhere you go you're wearing that and it's kind of in the jacket and it's kind of like hey i don't i don't really care this is how i am except i look at your hair and you've got like brad pitt fucking hair so it's not like you don't care right you've got to run your fingers through your hair because your hair matters so if your hair matters everything else matters now tell me what's going on with the uniform
0: it's just—it's like uh, Zucker, Zucker, uh, Zuckerberg says. You know, if you, you wear the same thing every day, you don't have to. The same, look, I wore military uniforms. I then wore corporate uniforms with Ed Goldman. You know, the braces and uh, the ties. Sure. And it's at some point in time that um, I had—you uh, know—I didn't need to kind of conform anymore to that. This is this is comfortable. It, it serves a lot of purposes. So I just started wearing it. It just became a uh, part of my. Uh, part of my routine and so it's 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 actually very simple i don't have to make a lot of decisions just bang throw it on and uh and it, it provides some continuity so well I,
1: I get i get the mark cuban thing like he wears a t-shirt every every everywhere he goes look i'm a billionaire i can wear a t-shirt i'm you know fuck you but i mean you're layered dude i mean like in in uh In the summer, you've got three shirts on. Does that that the layer
0: thing? The layer thing came from my time in the uh, North Arabian Sea. I mean, one of the things you do is you wear layers to keep. uh,
1: You know that's true. It's practical. uh,
0: I learned. I learned the layering. uh, Really, well, first off, the double shirts is from prep school. But a lot of people down south in the in the prep schools, I went to a military prep school. But we the the double shirts, the, the 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 Izod underneath the, uh, the button down is a, it, it was a quite traditional thing back then. So I used to wear that. But the layering came from the, the North Arabian scene. It's just it's very comfortable. It's 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 incredibly comfortable. I recommend it to everybody.
1: You got involved with the the Trump campaign. And as I understand it, you walk in. I mean, how, you didn't know Trump, right? You didn't know President Trump.
0: I, I, I met him, uh, I'd introduced him at a couple of events. I had interviewed him a couple of times, but no, I, I spent, uh, in 2010, I spent like three hours briefing him with Dave Bossi when he was thinking about running uh, for president against Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: we
0: we briefed him for a couple hours about the primary process, et cetera. I came away pretty impressed. Uh, but no, I didn't really know him. I, I was a stopgap. Remember, in August of 16, the campaign was basically in a, you know, I think, kind of in a death spiral a little bit. Manafort was, you know, we we essentially got rid of him because of his among combat. other
1: things, a criminal.
0: Yeah, but he he was all the issues came out later. We didn't know anything about that. That was purely the fact of, you know, Maggie Haberman and and Alexander Burns. I think did a story on you know, Saturday. I read it. Yeah, you know, I had an apartment right there at the Engineers Club across from Bryant Park. And when I used to read my Financial Times and Wall Street Journal, New York Times, every Saturday morning. Like yeah, that's six. part
1: of your uniform, by the way. You have like five newspapers with you at all times. I've
0: got to have a print newspaper. I'm a paper boy. This is one of my— Well, I,
1: I don't know if you know this, but they put that on something called an iPad now where you don't have to carry them all.
0: And you still—you get a different feel. i get got my journal over here. You, see, you get a different feel. The pr- print edition, you flip back and forth. You can mark it up. It's a, it's a very you got to print. Okay. Particularly FT, you gotta you gotta read your FT. Particularly the weekend FT is is tactile. It you is very, read.
1: it's very good. It's very good.
0: You gotta flip down. You gotta be able to flip through it. So um, no, that's where you know I made some calls, talked to some people. And, and there who was, called
1: you? Who called you? Who said, "Hey, we need." Yeah, I know who we need. We need Stephen K. Bannon. Who called you?
0: Nobody. Called. I I actually called some of the donors I knew, and we were talking about is this true? You know, because remember Breitbart, we were all in for Trump. And uh, you know, I talked to a number of people that day. The Mercers being one, Rebecca Mercer being one, and um, they kind of, you know, it kept somehow in conversation, you know, like you could do a better job. And I said, hey, he wouldn't lose by ten. You know, he'd lose by three, right? We'd hold a, the hold the hold the Senate, maybe get back the uh, maybe get back the House, or hold hold
1: the House. In fact, that is my whole theory with him to begin with. And 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 first of all, in all disclosure, like you know, watching these debates in the primary. And there's 16 Republicans that come out on, on the stage to begin with. Uh, Trump was about my 19th favorite of, of of the 16.
0: I saw in 2014 when I saw him the first time, wasn't at CPAC, but I saw him the first time up in uh, New Hampshire at a cattle call, I think it was in 14, May of 14. Yeah. I told Lee I said, that guy is going to win the nomination. He'll be the wow. president. New wow. from the very, very first. Bossie and I left. In fact, I told Trump that day in 13. I said to a hundred percent metaphysical certitude, one hundred percent, you will be. You're gonna win this. We just gotta stick with the program. How?
1: How? How did you see that?
0: It's just, it's just. like I saw Brexit. You can just see some things that are can come together. You can just can see, like right now, Trump's gonna win. That's why you know all these people in the southern all these guys, you know, trying to keep me out. I had no intention of ever going back to campaign. I did the campaign once. Yeah. The campaign is great. They got uh, Stepien, who was ran our ground game in in sixteen. You got Jason Miller. Who is was my kind of wingman, you know, he was with me for for over, almost a year at the, on the war room. You got Steve Cortez, who's one of my war room guys. You've got uh, Greg Manns, who was actually with me in 18 in the midterm and ran the war room. You've got a terrific team over there. And they're, I think they're doing a fantastic job given the resources they've got. And you've got the White House, I think President Trump's doing going to do. Trump, Trump is going to, what I ascertained, seeing the pandemic, you know, back in January is this world historical event. It also dawned on me in about May that the Democratic Party, because in the pandemic we covered it very seriously, but I've got a bunch of guys that say it's a hoax and you know it's nothing. And I, you know, I, I take a much more serious, I think, reason approach do, to it. I
1: do too. But
0: I saw the facts were I saw in about May that the the Democratic Party had in the mainstream media allies had traumatized their base. You saw these primaries where nobody was coming to vote. And you saw these things like in the Democratic primary in New York where they got, you know, everybody's mail-in votes, right? In, in Brooklyn, 30% of the votes are, are considered non-certified. In Manhattan, 20% of the votes. And it, I said, oh, my God, this is – they're going to lose. Trump is going to could run the tables because they're not going to have anybody come out and vote. And that's when it dawned on me, oh, my God, this whole thing's going to be a fight for what actually is the vote. And that's what I've been dedicating. That's why I kicked off last night, this national tour, on on the plot to steal 2020. You well, know? Well, We've now, been you know, on this now for months, but I've really dedicated myself to this. And my next new mission is to make sure that Trump is actually inaugurated on the 20th of January. Well, that it's much long-
1: we know, Steve. That much we know. And, 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 like, look, I mean, you can go on any show you want to go on. I mean, you're Steve Bannon. Like, you know, you can go anywhere and you can do anything you want. And I get that. Uh, and every one of them you do go on, it's going to be about this. So this one doesn't have to be, is is my point. Uh, this one can be about, like, how did you – who called you? You show up, and and you meet Trump, uh, and you go in the first day. I guess it was a Sunday, right? No,
0: no, no, no. no. I call, I talked to him on Saturday, and uh, the Mercers actually go out and see him at, at a fundraiser. In the, the Mercers
1: are very big Republican fundraisers.
0: Not, not Republicans so much; they're conservatives. They actually give to a lot of different, like Susan B. Anthony. I'm they sorry. Is there people.
1: a third party that's uh, they, they give could... to the
0: Republican Party, but they're more also give it to to people. Remember, they huge givers to Ted Cruz, who wasn't exactly a model Republican, right? He was kind of a an outlier. And they, um, you know, well, they're not.
1: A... He's a douche. And 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 <laughs> they
0: then they flip and become big Trump guys. But I talked to him that night on the 13th. I think it was Saturday the 13th. And he likes my shtick. He, he said, why would you do this? I said, because you can win. Why would you leave Breitbart? And he says, well, look, let's, I want to do it. Let's meet tomorrow morning for breakfast and uh, and, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll work out an agreement. I go, fine. And so at eight o'clock in the morning, uh, I go down to Trump Tower. I kind of wander in. It's crickets and they got a guard. And I walk up and I said, it's us. And I'm walking to the tower. And I didn't even know there's a resident. I said, Steve Bannon to see Mr. Trump. And he goes, uh, okay, uh, do you have an appointment? I go, yeah, I got an appointment. He go, you short? Sure? I go, yeah. He said, and you're here? I go, yeah. And he goes, okay. And he makes a call and he goes, uh, you know, Mr. Trump's not here. And at the time, I didn't realize Trump didn't even live there, around the corner at the residence. I mean, I'm clueless. So I got Trump's cell number. I call him. He goes, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in the lobby of Trump Tower. And he goes, you fucking idiot. What are you doing there? <laughs> I like that. We're supposed to have breakfast. I'm going to tee off right afterwards. And I kind of like, Where's Bedminster? <laughs> I had no at the end. He goes, I hear okay. it's in New Jersey. And he says, Come out for lunch. And then he uh, he says, I'll go play now. And you come for lunch. And he, he gives me these incredibly detailed directions. And I'm like, He's never heard of you know, Google. I, I'm sitting there going, I got it. I got it. I, no, no, no. Then you turn it, Snakehead Road. And you, so I go out there, a driver, and I pull up to this. Thing, and the driver says, Mr. Banner for Mr. Trump. The guy checks the list, and they go, oh, yeah, he's here for the lunch, the lunch.
1: The lunch, so everybody's going to be there.
0: The lunch, I thought he and I were going to have the lunch. The guy goes, yeah, fine. I go up, and they pull up to the clubhouse, this old, beautiful you know, house, and uh, I get out, and this head guy comes out, and he says, oh, you're here for the lunch. <laughs> and I go, yeah, I just think I'm here to grab lunch with Mr. Trump. They go, yeah, yeah, the lunch is going to be over here. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? are And I walk in, and it's like a round table with like eight settings. And I go, oh, fuck. I'm here. Now I'm going to audition. And I, I, I'm figuring, I'm not yeah. auditioning to this thing, right? You're going
1: to juggle in front of 40 fucking yeah, people. I'm going
0: to juggle. I'm going an to audition. And then uh, they go, yeah, Mr. Ailes, Rudy, the governor, nobody's here yet.
1: Oh, wow. And the devils are all here. I Mr. Go, Ailes. Fuck?
0: I'm sitting there, and I'm like two hours early. An hour later... Roger Ailes comes wandering in and I knew Roger pretty well. And he goes, What the fuck are you doing here? And I go, Hey, I just got invited out to lunch. He goes, Are you here for debate prep? And I go, No, I'm just he wanted me to have he just wanted to have lunch. I didn't know he says, Oh, well, we're here for debate prep. And then Rudy shows up and Chris Christie shows up. And um, Trump kind of comes in from playing golf and he goes, Hey, you're here. I go, yeah. And I think, God, he can't do this interview. We can't talk about this in front of these guys. And he just sits down and they start shooting the shit. This is debate the prep. They're just shooting the shit. And now
1: that's debate the prep. They're shooting the, the shit.
0: This is the killer. Now now all of a sudden come wandering in is Paul Manafort. Uh-huh. And there's no like place. Paul Manafort comes in and he's in whiting a tie. He's got he's got like yachting gear on and a blazer, and he looks like Thurston Hal the Third. And I go, oh, my God, this Maggie Haberman piece. Is, Trump's got the paper from the day before. In bring, fact, he brings the papers. And he get he eviscerates a guy like I've never seen in
1: my life. And Manafort I'm
0: like Manafort did? Uh, Trump does on Manafort.
1: Oh, Trump eviscerates Manafort.
0: Manafort was not invited to this. It was a debate prep for those guys. I just got invited to lunch. Trump knew he was having lunch. Just come out and grab lunch. But he didn't want Manafort and he's says he's ripping on Manafort. He like, looks at Manafort's dress and goes, You know, this is the problem. He says, you know, we're supposed to be running a campaign that's, you know, MAGA. And he says, Every day I see you on TV, you're out in this got it's got in the bottom, Southampton, New York. You're in the Hamptons and you're dressed like you're on a yacht. And uh, you know, you're terrible on TV. I don't want you on TV anymore. It's just it, the whole thing was and then he starts going through the Maggie Hayerman. You know, story, which was a brutal story. What was
1: Manafort saying when he was getting his ass handed to him in front of everybody?
0: He was uh, being a, a gen, he was trying to, it was just, he was just trying to, he was just in a clutch, right? Well, hoping- I,
1: I'm picturing you right now. I can see you right now, and you've got your hands in a defensive position. Like the he guy was, was bobbing and weaving.
0: He was, well, he backed in the corner, went to the clinch, hoping Trump would punch himself out. <laughs> and, uh, Is, that was-
1: Is that possible? Is that possible? No,
0: it's not possible. I actually stepped in to defend him. It kind of ended, and then they got into some. You know, Roger t- turns it. Roger came in with some. You know, Reagan story. And then they go. I remember when I was prepping Reagan, and so it uh, it it kind of went from there. But now I I spent time with Trump afterwards. And did you know
1: Paul Manafort?
0: Never met him in my life. I've so you, this all-
1: guy, you never met him before in your life, and you First, felt so bad for the ass kicking he was getting there. That you you you, at the risk of not getting a job or not being involved or being asked to leave yourself, you you took up for him. You started to I, defend him I, I
0: for him because I just kind of want to kind of move the conversation along. That we'd get back to the Bay Prep, and then eventually I'd get to talk to him one on one. Just so, you know, and, by the way, so I, I got the job, and he basically.
1: But said, did you get to talk to him one on one?
0: Yeah, I, I talked to Trump for about an hour afterwards. He said, "Let's do this," and I went into the. Actually, they called and I, I went into the office that day. I went into, I went into, um, I went to Trump Tower. I got there at about five or six o'clock, and the same guards there. Yeah, and you uh, know, and they had a pass for me. I go up. And How I'm
1: do you like me now, guard?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm ex- I'm expecting to walk into this place. It's a five o'clock on a Sunday, six o'clock. It's 88 days ago. I think I'm walking into the set of the candidate. It's going to be brilliant people walking right. around with analysis and spreadsheets. Working and, hard. And yeah, yeah. You know, the Bob Redford types are going to be around. And I go up there and it's completely dark. And I go, wow, maybe I'm on the wrong floor. And I wander around all the way. And they had a war room set up, this huge whole wing of the building with nothing but TV sets. And there's one guy sitting there, a guy named Andy Sarabian. And, uh, I go, who are you? And he goes, I'm I go, what are you? What are you doing? And he goes, Oh, I'm the rapid response guy. And I go, Hey, is like, uh, is the real headquarters in DC? They told me it was here. And he goes, uh, no, it's here. He goes, who are you? I'm Steve Bannon. He goes, Oh, you're the Breitbart guy. I go, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I said, well, where is everybody? He says, Oh, well, they, they, they take the weekends off and they come back, they fly back up from DC or come in on, on Monday. And I go, like, isn't it 80 days to go? Don't, like, most campaigns have everybody here 24 hours? He goes, yeah, like, if it's a real campaign, you do. But he said, this is not, not So that's, Raven became one of the top guys in the thing. And that's, we, you know, Paul left two days later. And you
1: changed all that. Because, like, obviously, like, and it, it's weird. Because people would think, like, you know, Trump, master of the universe uh, for real estate. And gets jobs done, you would think that people would be working themselves to death and there was nobody there. Now, he, what are Rudy, what's Rudy no, doing? What's what's Chris Christie doing?
0: Well, no, no, but it, it, he look Trump. And you see this in the White House. It, he he depends on people to get jobs done. If he has faith in you and trust yeah, you. Yeah. You
1: know,
0: okay. after I told him what the strategy was, look, I think we're 10 or 12 down. I said, we've got to close it to within margin of error by the first debate, which would be the 20th at Hofstra. I said, if we just get some basic stuff done, we can close this. And you start talking him Mary went to Mexico. And when the numbers started closing, he's one of these chairman CEOs that if you tell him something and you say directionally, here's what's going to happen and the numbers close, he leaves you alone. So for that first six weeks, as those numbers started to close, people forget on the morning of Monday, September 29th, 2016, Morning Joe had the Bloomberg uh, pollster, who's the woman that's from the uh, Omaha uh, Reporter, whatever it is, the Omaha Times, that does all the stuff for the for the for the caucuses. She's the number one pollster, like around that morning on Morning Joe, she breaks it, and we were, I think, up one in margin of error, but we were actually leading Hillary. But that day was a day that Hillary was like in panic mode because Trump had really closed the. What an eight of twelve or fourteen point gap, however you who whoever's polling you were taking, but he had closed because he went to Mexico, he went to Flint, Michigan. We were taking the we were taking the torch to her and she couldn't respond. Yeah. Right? She was she was sitting there going, Breitbart, white supremacy, and I said I told the guys when she came out with white supremacy, Breitbart, I said, Hey, if they're gonna do identity politics and he hammers economic nationalism every day. We're gonna win this thing. And well, she, she, she didn't mean, have.
1: A I think I think you're right, and 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 certainly can't talk about Flint because you know I, I think everybody's fucked that hey, up, and I'm gonna hey, I'm gonna go hey, off. I,
0: I, hey, guys, I got to bounce because my next meeting's here. But Dan, can I follow up with you? Maybe follow complete this tomorrow or something. Can
1: we do that? Because I've got three other issues to talk to you about that I think are important to you. Go well, so
0: through whatever else you want to go through tomorrow. All
1: right, bye. Steve, thanks for joining us again. Uh, you. You were gracious enough to give us so much time yesterday. You said you were going to give us an hour yesterday. You gave us two hours yesterday. There wasn't enough time to cover everything we wanted to cover. And you've been fantastic and willing to come back to us uh, for a second day. And we hope we'll get through it all. I hope you get through everything you want to cover.
2: Where I'm, a big we were... Dan,
0: I'm a big Dan David fan, so...
1: Well, thank you. Um, well, where we were yesterday is... You had you had started uh, in the campaign in the most in the most, uh, you know, only a Trump campaign can start this way with your meeting at Bedminster, which started out as breakfast at Trump Tower and uh, became the beginning of the slaying of uh, of Paul Manafort. uh, And you saved him (laughs) for a while there anyway. Uh, And you went out and um, saw the operations as it were and how it was working in the off hours. And and from there, what did you do, Steve? How did you reorganize everything, and you got out there?
0: It, 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 listen, it really didn't need a ton of reorganization. These are very motivated people, and, and you know, I was just one part of a uh, of really what became a great team. The uh, you know, we brought in Bill Stepien to run ground game. We brought in Dave Bossi. The first call I made was to Reince Priebus, because I said, "Look, we need a coalition to win this." And I'm the most anti-establishment, anti-RNC guy. I only met Ryan's for about 10 minutes back in 2012, when we tried to get, we had Herman Cain come to the Breitbart embassy and I assembled for the only time I think they've ever been in a room because half of them were suing each other, the heads of the Tea Party groups. Because a lot of these guys were suing each other for copyright and brand and everything like that. So I got them all into a room, I met Rice for 10 minutes. He came in and talked and Herman Cain, we basically offered to put together a coalition of Tea Party groups to help Romney's campaign and, and Herman Cain and Reince was there would be supportive, and Herman Cain was uh, was our guy, and Romney's team wouldn't even meet with him. Never met with the Tea Party. That's one of the reasons he got he got crushed. You see the dismissive attitude to, to populism. So I, I real I called Reince and I said, look, I need Sean Spicer and Katie Walsh up here immediately. I need
1: Sean full time to help. Sean Spicer, I remember him now. I forgot about Sean Spicer. Sean
0: Spicer came as as kind of the co, uh, you know, uh, Jason. Ran comms, but he had a bigger role. He was really kind of a strategist working with me. I've got a lot of I knew Jason uh, a little bit because the Mercers had put so much money into the the Trump uh, the um, Cruz pack. I think they ended up putting in twenty five million dollars. We knew the campaign pretty well. Jason had done I think a really good job for Ted Cruz, and he um, he was over so Sean Spicer kind of came up and was a uh, augmented the team. Katie Walsh. Dave Bossy, Katie Walsh is the chief operations officer for the RNC. Dave Bossy a, a, a grown citizen, an old buddy of mine, and, and really steppy and stepping, stepping ran the ground game. And really, Bossy and, and, and Katie became the kind of co-head day-to-day of the operations of the campaign. Um, Kellyanne, who was fabulous, she really went out and did. She was the forefront of really taking the incoming media every day. I mean, she started, I think, the first day of Morning Joe, she would go do the toughest assignments and just get crushed every day, but she just had such resilience and really put a woman's voice on it to explain. Oh, Kel- Kellyanne,
1: Kellyanne was something else. I mean, like, there were days I just like couldn't, couldn't take her anymore. The, the, the way she had to deflect and yeah. did it on un- a unembarrassingly, but more and more. Well, she you came see
0: back like every day. And then Ryan's, we had to put together the coalition. We had, I think 80% or eighty-two percent of Republicans were going to vote for Trump. Ryan's told me it's got to be above ninety, or you can't right. win. We eventually got, to, I think, to ninety-four.
1: Yeah, but 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 back 94. with Kelly, but back with Kellyanne, she stayed on message so well. Yeah, uh, and was so clear at all times and so confident, and really did, I guess, as it turns out, the best polling. Right. I mean, she
0: he she- pulled together a team of uh, Tony Fabrizio. We had. Uh, a bunch of consultants, you know, they all said, oh, Cambridge Analytica had the special. They were one of a number of assaultants. We had the RNCs. Katie Walsh had a great thing called Turfs. It's this kind of technical thing. They've got every precinct broken down. I mean, the RNC's got a very sophisticated data trust in these guys. The RNC would kind of get dismissed by the Obama guys. I believe that combination gave us a much better picture of things that were going on uh, than, uh, than, than Clinton had with all their, you know, supposedly— uh, you know, great polling. It turns out, that I think they actually, they thought they were so far ahead, they stopped polling, but Kellyanne did a great job. She pulled it all together. And without a big budget, remember, we were flying, Trump had actually put in $10 million at the end, just so we could even fly around. We were, we were really running on vapors.
1: Well, that's okay. He was supposed to fund the whole thing anyway, but I mean, <laughs> 10 million bucks at the end.
0: I thought Mexico was, but that's, I guess. I oh, that's, that's,
1: that's well in the end. Um, yeah. So like, who who was it? I mean you were you you were the number one guy you were in charge of all of them they all reported to you or was there somebody else that was it kind was, of in it charge was really
0: a, it was really a group thing it was not hierarchical we just kind of making it up as we go along remember right. I had never stepped into a, a campaign in my life right uh, even for city council I had been student body president but that was college stuff uh, the uh, no it just it was a collective effort uh, we had the best candidate we had Trump uh, we ran everything by him. It was very much untraditional. We had, you know, there had um, to
1: be like huge fights for power within when you no. don't have no,
0: Absolutely not. you're when telling me when he came on. I can tell you from the day I came on when Manafort uh, left, yeah. uh, there was never one turf fight or anything like that. It was Hope Hicks. It was Jared Ivanka, myself, Jason Miller, uh, you know, bossy rights. We bounced everything off each other. Um, even d- debate prep, it was uh, it was a ma- it was really a collective effort. I don't remember. I kind of went into a Zen thing. Normally, I, I run pretty hot. As the guys at Breitbart could tell you, I really went into a Zen mode. I don't think I raised my voice. In fact, I didn't. I never raised my voice the entire time because we realized we were so far behind and we had to get focused. Um, but it worked. It really worked well. Everybody had a role. Uh, you know, Jared and, and 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 Brad Parscale. It was really it was just one of those things that came together. Uh, you know, Jared had been working on the, the Mexico trip. He bounced that idea off me. It was so crazy. I just fell in love with it immediately. And we <laughs> were at Bedminster, and we we I hung out at their cottage with yeah. uh, Jared and Ivanka, and worked through the details of the of the. And I said, this is the type of thing we need need to build a to move the needle. And we decided Stephen Miller was there as a guy who had gotten on the campaign about a year before, and so we decided to do Phoenix with the big, the the ten point Trump program. Right, coming back from Mexico, everything clicked. And I I don't think he would have won if there had been any turf fights. And here's the reason why, is that I worked in places that, you know, I had a philosophy. I always try to stay 20% understaffed so people don't have time to play politics, that you're so busy or so overwhelmed. You just got to focus on the matter at hand. That was really the Trump campaign. And we had eclectic personalities with Bossy and Katie Walsh and Kellyanne Conway and, you know, and the media got to remember the other thing too is the media completely dumped on this every day. That Robbie Mook and these guys are just these amazing professionals. Hers is so professional; they do everything. And I, I remember this one uh, item: we had a uh, we knew we had to overperform in the Panhandle in, in areas that were just not I four corridor. We had to have an overwhelming like ninety percent turnout in the Panhandle to offset what was going to happen in in in, uh, in Broward and in Palm Beach and Miami Dade. And so we spent a lot of time focusing on that. We went to Jackson, Mississippi. And the reason is that, that TV market plays into the panhandle. And we had a rally. And I remember the next day, I didn't go. Uh, I was I was doing something else, getting ready for something else. But I'm watching Morning Joe with Jason Miller, and they got uh, uh, one of the New York Times Young Reporters on there. And Morning Joe is saying they're mocking us because Joe Scarborough spends a call. They're laughing at us. This clown show, they're so far behind. They're in Mississippi, which they've already got. And they said they've, uh, and they, they're so clueless. They actually have this British guy, open for Trump, and they're sitting there going like, these rubes in Mississippi and bib overalls, you know, uh, who, how did they even know an English guy exists, an English politician? And it was Nigel Farage. Because remember, Brexit in 2016 are yeah. inexperienced, sure could be linked. Right. And what they're missing is they're watching the thing, and Nigel Farage is talking, and it's a standing ovation. People are like throwing stuff and saying, Fry, you know, they're just Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. And I'm sitting there going, They are so arrogant that this is the reason we're going to win. They don't understand anything about what this campaign's about. They don't understand what this election's about. They don't understand the dynamics underneath that are driving this. So the mainstream media mocked us every day. They really kind of had a small unit combat where everybody was focused on just one purpose. And, that and you purpose said was the welcome. election
1: was about identity politics. And that's where that's where she lost. If she was going to yeah. make this about identity politics. Remember,
0: the reason they called on the reason I kind of got the call or even was considered is that. I spent a long time going after the Clinton apparatus at Breitbart, at all these other organizations. I had was to to to, to let people know that this kind of globalist, uh, you know, operation that the the Clintons were, you know, kind of the front guys for, were destroying the country. That my point was to come in and browbeat Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Right, I'd never been on a campaign before. My thing was to focus on the takedown of Hillary Clinton, and she played into our hands. Mm-hmm. She played into our hands. You know, she she dismissed us. Remember, she called us the deplorables. When that happened, I, from that day forward, I said we got this. Yeah, baby. that was
1: a, that was that was unfortunate.
0: That, I, but, I, by the way, that was not a unforced error. That was written into her. That was a written speech down there at Harry Cipriani's on Wall Street. Was it really? That. So she wow. consciously did it, and the people around her did it. And if you see all the tapes that came out later about her banking pitches, uh, whether it's in Brazil or other yeah. places she's getting spent Yeah, I,
1: I mean, and look, and the, let's let's face it. I mean, they're the pillars, I think, that are part of corporate world that, that rule in this country um, are drug companies, uh, big oil, uh, law firms. You know, she got a lot of money from all of these firms. Banking, obviously. Uh, that's the, Look, the
0: it's thing. the managed – cl- our elites have lost faith in the underpinnings of the Judeo-Christian West, and they've lost faith in basically the common decency, grit, stick and really exceptionalism of the American people, the working-class people. That's what this election – and that's what 2020 is about. It came down to something very simple was about identity politics, it was about managed decline. Everywhere, across every aspect you can see America's in decline. And you know Pat Cadell, who's passed away, he did the, the smartest polling, which everybody dismissed him. He did this polling the show for the first time in American history. and he'd been doing this for 40 years since the, the, Clinton, since, uh, the Carter years, that 70 percent, I think of the American people believed America was in decline in the uh, of working class and middle class people, and they blamed the elites. And they were looking for a leader to return America to her former greatness. Mm -hmm. That's the brilliance of Trump's, of Trump's MAGA, right, the the phrase. So that was what the election was about, is about returning America to her greatness by confronting these elites, not about identity politics. So she had the, they never knew with all their smarts, and this is why the media is so arrogant, because they don't really press them. She never knew what the campaign was about. She never knew it was the election, but they had $2.2 billion. They never understood what this was about. Uh, And so we were able to, you know, with very little money and kind of this kind of grab bag uh, group of people who had never really run campaigns, were able to basically support a guy who was a fire breather who the nation turned to to say, let's give him a try. You know, he sounds like a disruptor. He's clearly not going to go down and play by the Roberts, you know, rules of order or the Marquis of Queensberry's rules. Uh, let's give it a shot. And look, we drew an inside straight. Yeah, That's I did. Pretty obvious, right? And it's yeah. but the inside straight had some thinking to it. One, a couple of professors later at Boston University did something that nobody else did. They went back to part of it and they dug up our strategy. It was one of the things I did was get him to focus on going to areas and putting out Facebook stuff on areas that were the highest combat casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan. And those people, veterans and families of, of the wounded and dead and their neighbors, they rallied to our side. Most of them, a lot of them, blue-collar Democrats.
1: Oh, that's micro-targeting.
0: So those are the types of ways that we focus, and we just saw that they weren't there. Later, there was a book written. I forget what it was. or I remember Fritz Zakhar told me Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan was telling guys in their campaign, particularly Robin Mook, he says, hey, look, I kind of see where Bannon and these guys are sending Trump, and it's a disturbing pattern. Uh, and are we going to focus on this or not? And he, I was heard was like dismissed uh, by Robbie Mook and these guys. Who I just thought Mook, you know, every day I'd sit there and watch Morning Joe and watch these things as we could grab it, pull these things, and we were getting crushed about how brilliant they were and how uh, unprofessional we were. And I was just never that impressed. I I wasn't impressed by her ads. I wasn't impressed about what she talked about. I thought her speeches were rambling. I thought she never really got to the point. I thought her debate prep was terrible. Uh, I just thought overall they're terrible. But I said, who am I to judge? All these people are saying they're brilliant, and we're clowns, and we're kind of behind. We're closing, but we're kind of behind, so you don't know. But in in retrospect, you can see they had no earthly idea what they're doing. And it tells you something about money and politics. You're seeing this here today where they're in panic mode so Bloomberg's got to throw $100 million into Florida. Right. The polling just came out today. The Washington Post, uh, w- uh, ABC polling shows Trump up four. Uh, tr- you know, B- Bloomberg doubled down again last night. said so he's going to put $16 million in illegally to basically buy the felon vote. So, no, I think these things are – I think these things – I think they're deep underlying uh, movements and issues and, and, and things that are very deep that drive it. But on the surface, you get this kind of chop. But uh, it's uh, you know. All right. It, well, it, look,
1: since we're since we're talking about you, we're talking about Steve. Yeah. Um, you, there are times where you were able to do this yesterday. Hopefully, you still can today. Like, yeah. take me back to that moment. Did you? Did you think in the last few days you were going to win? I mean, seriously, did you? No, really- I
0: told Trump on the 13th, and even if Billy Bush reading really, people knew this, I told Trump I mean I wouldn't have taken the job. I said 100% metaphysical certitude you will win. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Did he believe that? I played every day. I I knew we were going to win. I was already setting up for Roger Ailes. So on the Sunday, the last Sunday before the election, uh, we're doing, I think, nine stops. We start early in the morning at 8 in the morning in Vegas in a a ballroom. We go to Colorado. We're going to come east and end, I think, in Virginia. Um, That Friday, Paul Ryan, you know, the linchpin of this Of these rallies is Wisconsin. That's where we're going to pivot, go through the north, the the blue states, and then come back down, pivot down to North Carolina, Virginia.
1: You know that's the that's the second time Roger Ailes has come up as more than just like somebody who runs Fox News. I mean, when you show up sixty days prior to the election, I mean, you have a Fox News head, right? uh, that is that is doing debate prep for a candidate. I I think with that.
0: I think he had left Fox News over that 4th of July. I think he stepped down and cut his deal. I think he was at Fox News. I I think he had just recently... I think... And when I went to the... When I went to the um, convention with Breitbart and Breitbart News Daily and everything like that, we were all set to meet those guys. I think Ailes got blown out that weekend. I think that... Did you know about that
1: stuff ahead of time? Did you... I mean, like, look, you're in New York. You you know all the movers and shakers in the news. Did you kind of know the Roger Ailes... Issues prior to them becoming public.
0: I I had been part of an informal group that Roger reached out to of people to um, Help him think through what the ramifications of the release of the Gabe Sherman book was years before and I had a great relationship with Roger. I wasn't dependent. Remember I had a rule at Breitbart. You can't go on Fox News Uh, They'd asked me at one time to get into the thing about potentially why, why
1: why couldn't you go on Fox News?
0: Because I didn't want my – I never wanted to be dependent upon – all my competitors basically had contribution deals at Fox News, and to me were kind of an adjunct of of Fox News. I wanted total and complete independence. And so I told people, I don't want you – the traditional thing in conservative media is get some sort of hit on Obama, get a drudge link, and then call all day the producers of Hannity and things and get on a hit. I said, we're not doing that. We're doing something totally different. So I would tell people when we hired them. You're not going on Fox News, and I think outside of myself going on and talking about my movies, a couple of films, and Andrew dying, I don't think anybody at Breitbart ever went on Fox News. So- no, not, during my, not from 2012, when Andrew passed away, to, I left to the campaign. I don't believe we ever had one person from Breitbart go on Fox News. Maybe one strike, but six, four years, five years when I ran it. Nobody. I, that was my business model, and that's what happened one maybe Well, day. you know,
1: like, when you say it, it makes sense, it, but—
0: well in two thousand fifteen and Megan Kelly attacked him out of the yeah. box uh-huh. for his Twitter and Facebook. You know, I'm, we're the ones that did like hundreds of articles and she started crying and had to get security. Ailes called me. You know, I'd had a pretty good relationship working on the Gabe Sherman book. And um, he calls me and goes, uh, hey, you know, you gotta stop this. She's crying and, and all this. And I said, you know, we're not gonna stop it, we're gonna increase it. I said that's a left-wing drive-by hit, you know, going to a guy's Twitter feed. And going into some you know facebook thing and bringing up all this nonsense and you know we're not we're not you know we're populist we're nationalists he's kind of he's kind of our guy i mean that uh, you got a, a bunch of uh, establishment you get every vertical covered but these guys are all stiffs and they're not going to be clinton and he and i got into it i mean they he sent his lawyer down the next day and i wouldn't say we were friends but we we're pretty close and i t- he sent peter johnson down to see me the next day with kind of a threat that hey if you guys keep this up. I had Tony Lee and and, and uh, Mad Boyle, and you go back and look. I mean, they were doing hit pieces on Megyn Kelly every day. This is why she came out a couple of months ago and said I was misogynist because I I personally turned the Breitbart apparatus to attack her, and I did. Well, do, do, <laughs> do you, you consider think, yourself? I, you consider I told yourself L, misogynist. I said, you, I said you've created a monster. I said she's a monster. Well, wait a minute. I said, you, you one day. I said this this woman's out of control. But for, we we put it back in, and I think helped really help Trump get to the next stage in the entire 2000 you absolutely
1: day. did you absolutely did but do you consider yourself mis- misogynist i mean like you, you got to live with yourself right you know who you are i mean like
0: if i look, my daughter is a west point grad and you know it was a, in the 101st airborne i mean I, I i pride myself in uh in i came from a family with a very strong mother i pride myself in the fact of uh knowing how to uh to raise uh, young women to be empowered and to take on the world, I think I'm the opposite of misogynist. So you think that, like, whether
1: it's to, a man or a woman, if it's going to be a default, fight, you don't care.
0: Her, her default position, her default position yeah. was to attack Trump for all this terrible thing. She was using that card. I think that's why NBC and other people just got a belly full of her,
1: uh-huh. right? And
0: why she can't get a gig today right. is that people just realize she's a total phony because she is a total phony, right? And she tried to, she tried to be the drag, she tried to be the giant killer. And went out, and we just weren't prepared to stand for it. We, I told him point blank, and I told him, I said, "You got a problem. You created a monster." And he sent Peter Johnson down. I told him flat out, I said, "Now you—you going you to sue me? He said you going to muscle me?" I said, first off, there's nobody on Breitbart." I said, "I've built a fucking machine, and we have nothing to do with Fox. You don't—you don't add one bit of traffic to our site. I don't have any of my people on there. I'm not a—I'm not a contributor. I don't take any of your money. I could care less. And look, I love Fox. I love." Sean Hannity and and in uh, all the shows and all the people I knew the people what I'd help I'd help it kind of been one of the heads of this thing this informal group that that went through this Gabe Sherman book and look the Gabe Sherman book had a lot of you know the Gabe Sherman book is kind of what they based all the things on later coming forward
1: well what did now, you there- say to Roger about that if you're on a working group did you I mean like were there any points in time where you're like hey you know Roger just between you and I this is fucked up you need you know you need to make amends
0: um, my advice there, he was looking for me for more of, you know, hey, you're Steve Banner. <laughs> you're supposed to be the hardest dude in the world.
1: Yeah, about one has nothing to combat. do with the other. And I, said,
0: I said the content itself, yeah. I said, I don't know if it's true or not. That's not my, I don't have the time to do due diligence. I do the time to that. It kind of is what it is. It The publishers, what we did, had heard is that the publishers couldn't verify a lot. So there was quote unquote more out there that wasn't in there. My observations of of Roger and seeing him in a number of different situations, seeing the staff around him, was anything but to me he kind of came across as a the nice uncle. In fact, I never even saw he was supposed to be such a tough taskmaster or anything. I never saw any of
1: that. It turns out he was out he was the other kind of uncle.
0: Well, no, I didn't spend a ton of time with him, but I did see him in, in a number of situations, particularly around staff and female staff, and I saw nothing but respect. So I couldn't tell. But you know Sherman had worked on this book for a long time. They had a lot of money to put the book together. I had heard that there were other allegations that couldn't pass legal, so the publisher didn't put them in. But it turned out later, I think some of that stuff was the basis of – as as kind of standards changed and the Me Too movement kind of came. And so what had happened with Harvey and other people finally started to come to Well, I mean, see, life.
1: The standards were actually set then. But I find it interesting that, like, he's this nice uncle – kind of a kind of a, a figure and you're this this really tough guy right that everybody goes to that uh that if they're going to get in a fight they want you next to them you know the nice uncle like in my mind is unquestionably a fucking pervert at this point and then the guy who's the real fighter that really believes in things doesn't treat women like that or that i've heard anyway i mean I, maybe somebody's going to come forward Gosh, gotcha. I hope, me, I hope not, Steve.
0: Has, you've never seen a racist. I've done thousands of hours, yeah. th- thousand hours of radio, television. I've had shows for years. Yeah, uh, yeah. Any any writing I've ever done, they've gone through my record on 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 the female thing, on on anything I said. Right, you've never seen one term I've come as racist. Uh, never a term of anything of any treatment of women. But and, yeah, hey, trust you, me, they've had private detectives, people, the foreign intelligence services. I've, well, through
1: I've been through that, too, with Black Cube following me around and the former Israeli Mossad. That's that's a fun time.
0: They're very effective.
1: Uh, we burned them. They tried to honeypot us and we honeypotted them. Did you know that? Did you know that the uh, pictures in the Wall Street Journal that were procured by the Wall Street Journal uh, on Rose McGowan of the Black Cube operatives? We provided those pictures to the Wall Street Journal. We had taken them. Like six months before, when Black Cube tried to honeypot us and wow. get us to talk about AmTrust Financial, we knew wow. what was happening and we were surveilling them. So
0: wow, yeah, you guys are pretty pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, you tables on them because everybody's as good as they get. As good as you get.
1: Yeah, it turns out not so much. Maybe with Rose McGowan when you've got you know somebody that's kind of broken and 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 hurting and and you can do that, which was which was sick, but. Yeah, you've had that in your life, and that kind of stuff has not come out on you, um, yet it, it seems like you get painted by by a certain part of the, the country as a misogynist or as a racist, and I think yeah. that goes back to you know your economic nationalist, and I think this is the first time I met you. Uh, I remember you and I were having a conversation, and it's the only conversation you and I really ever had, because again, you don't chit-chat, uh, so I, I had you. <laughs> in a room, and I, and you were talking about economic nationalism, and the things that you said really resonated with me and how I feel like it's not just anti-globalist so to be an anti-globalist to be one. It's, hey, if we're going to trade with you, let's be fair. It's going to be fair trade. It's going to be equal trade, and that's not anti-globalist. That's anti, you know, taking it in the shorts every single day. But the whole economic nationalist always gets shorted with you to nationalist not just economic yeah. nationalists, but yeah. nationalist. Why yeah. do you think that is?
0: Because they're afraid they don't want anybody to be to, to come up and help this movement help working class people. They they like winning. They're they're the dominant business culture, they're the dominant financial culture, and they don't want any they don't brook any nonsense. They don't want any they don't want they, they don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't want to admit the system's not self-sustaining, and they'll crush anything in this path. I mean it's it's pretty simple. Look at look at Trump. Uh, Who you know in this election, uh, you know James Carville came out today and was point blank. He says, "Hey, Trump knows what the stakes are. That's why he's trying to steal it with the Supreme Court. He understands stakes. He'll be in prison. We're going to put him in jail."
1: We're going back. We're going back to that, are we?
0: This is as smash mouth as you can get. So yeah, they call me a lot of things. Now here's the beauty of it: I'm relentless. I'm a honey badger. I do not care. They can call me a honey badger because because the truth always comes out. I've got a bigger platform now. Things are, you know, and I've had more impact and, and, and look, I'm just getting started. So you and, just, and just I think handle- people
1: know that that nationalist actually means white nationalist. I think that's they know that's what it means, because like I mean, like, do, do you know any black nationalists? Like, does somebody ever get referred to as a black nationalist? Does that happen? Even though there are. I grew up with them. Yeah, because when when jobs were leaving General Motors and going to Canada, and going to Mexico, you know, all of my minority friends and black friends and their parents were fucking nationalists. They were like, "I'm losing my job from General Motors to Canada or to to Mexico," and but they they're not referred to that way. But they believed more and less less into nationalism, certainly less into you know the the globalization that hurt America and. It's unfortunate that that happens. I think, well, I, think
0: look, I think today, I think that's where you get people like Ice Cube. I think if people listen and really pay attention to what people like Ice Cube are saying, you're seeing real—and this is why Biden's having a tough time closing on black males. I think you're seeing a real effort of economic nationalism coming to the black male community, that they get the joke that unlimited— Uh, immigration, both legal and particularly illegal, has crushed, has kept wages down, that the globalist, the chamber of commerce mentality wants to increase the labor pool all the time instead of restricting it. Uh, So, no, I think you're seeing there is a form of black nationalism. I mean, Farrakhan and those guys are black nationalists. Yes, no nationalism is crazy. White nationalism, I mean, just take a look at it. It's a a, a ridiculous idea. Um, Black nationalism, I think, is also a ridiculous idea. Um, but I'm a big believer in economic nationalism, regardless of what your um, your race, your color, your ethnicity, as long as you're an American citizen, yeah. that's what matters, right? And you should have a but, special deal.
1: And you're not right? anti-immigration. I mean, you're anti-illegal immigration. I'm not immigration. anti-immigration,
0: but I am, anti, I, I, am, I am very much a restrictionist until we get things sorted out. Look,
1: you can't turn the entire education Well, that's program. the point, Steve. Yeah. Until you, that's the point, until you get things sorted out. Yeah. So, like, there shouldn't be any kind of I'm this or that there should be. Let's get it fucking sorted out. Yeah. I mean, and this is I I don't know if you ever saw the MSNBC. I was on Chris Matthews, uh, which was just a slice of heaven, uh, especially in the green room at the Chris Matthews uh, hardball thing. Uh, And he brought up immigration.
0: You were on, you were on, you were on a misogynist show like Chris Matthews.
1: Uh, I didn't, look, I got, hey, I got, hey, hey, you're saying. as a Republican candidate for Congress, I got Chris Matthews to agree with me three times in a segment. That's so big. That's that, that was a record. But, that's a
0: reason. He, that's one of the reasons he's gone from show.
1: <laughs> oh, and I was on there with, uh, you know, one of Hillary, Hillary campaigns, campaign strategists and, 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 and somebody from WAPO. So I was, I was that, that, that guy in the middle but he brought up immigration, and I was like, "Look, man, we all want this solved. You know who wants to solve the most? People who are immigrating here. Uh, and by the way, some people don't don't want to live here; they just want to work here. And we don't have a guest worker program that's very well thought out either. And I it seems to me that both parties." want this not to be fixed so that they can fight about it and get votes on either side about it because there's no reason it can't be fixed. You talk about building a wall, Steve. President Trump has built so much less of a wall than President Obama. It's ridiculous. And when President Obama was building a wall, nobody cared. And President Bush built a wall, nobody cared. Uh, And and the same thing with, with Clinton. So, I think part of it's the rhetoric and the way President Trump presents that whole thing, but every one of these former presidents were for border security in the form of a wall, and now that seems to be that Trump's the only one that's ever been for it. Why?
0: Because the other ones actually, I totally disagree. The other ones had no intention of actually building it. They did build they, it. They, they, they built. They built small at best small little patches of it. Listen, here's, a, here's Haven't the- Haven't they draw. built more of it than Trump has? Wall Street, Wall Street, all the donor class, Chamber of Commerce, what they want is open borders. They want unlimited, they want unlimited uh, uh, illegal alien labor at the bottom end, and they want to open up and take the world to compete in the technology jobs, etc. We're not going to sort this country out until we have taken what they turned the education system into the STEM program, science, technology, engineering, math, Until we can get Hispanics and African-Americans into engineering schools, right, Right. and out of engineering schools and into high-value-added tech jobs in Silicon Valley and participating in the Fourth Industrial Revolution at the cutting edge of those jobs, we're not going to sort this country out, okay? until And also take some of that defense budget we piss away in Afghanistan and put that money into Baltimore and and St. Louis to bring manufacturing jobs back close to these major cities. Once we do that, we'll sort it out. And nobody, and by the way, the Chamber of Commerce, Wall Street, uh, corporate America, they are adamantly opposed to that. And I know that from being in the Oval Office of Donald Trump on the tax bill. They fight tooth and nail any aspect of this. They could care, all this woke capital could care less about the reality of African-American and Hispanic uh, uh, ability to get forward in an advanced fourth industrial uh, revolution economy. That's what Trump represents. Until we sort that out, and by the way, that and I'm the chairman of the Hindu American coalition, Republican coalition, and I'm very close to the Modi guys. And I even say, hey, we've got to get this sorted out with offshoring jobs over even these service jobs to India. And we, we have a central problem. And the problem is there's not enough blacks and Hispanics in engineering schools. They're not getting jobs in here. Their IQs are no different than anybody else's. we just got to force the system. And if we don't do that, we're going to have massive problems going forward. And that's, to me, the beating heart of it. And I see guys like Ice Cube and others that I think, if you listen to them, they're coming to the conclusion, hey, the Democratic Party is basically not offering us anything. It's another pat on the head because they still back unlimited immigration. You know, Biden is going to basically give amnesty to $22 Illegal aliens that are here, not just DACA. That's going to happen immediately, the first things he's going to do. That will crush the black working class in this country. And I don't believe that they'll ever recover from that. So, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a restrictionist on, on immigration until we get our issue sorted out. It's not that I don't – look, I spend my – I've dedicated a huge part of my life to assisting the Chinese people in their freedom. Ask all the Modi guys. I'm one of the biggest supporters of Indian nationalism and in the, in the, in the, in the, in the nationalist movement in India. Uh and uh but I am adamant that this thing's gotta be sorted out here. You gotta build a wall to get your sovereignty back and really to take the power away from the Chamber of Commerce, take the power away from the agricultural industry, the real estate, the construction, everybody that dines off of unlimited illegal alien labor down on the border, that's gotta be stopped. And hey, guess what? If it costs you twenty bucks to flip a McDonald's hamburger, then it costs twenty bucks to flip a McDonald's hamburger. I think rising, rising wages are a great thing, not a bad thing.
1: So you're for a $15 or higher minimum wage? Uh,
0: I don't think you need to. If you, if you, if you, restrict, if you restrict illegal alien uh, 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 you know, uh, immigration, if you close the border and have sovereignty, you don't have to have these minimum wage laws. If you restrict the labor pool to American citizens, wages are going to explode. I don't think you put in a false thing because the problem with that, you put in a false thing like this minimum wage and you still allow this unlimited labor pool to come in, you got the worst of both worlds. Restrict the labor pool at the low end and then for tech workers, let wages rise, let people start to become a comic and then you can go to your thing of, hey, then we can have guest workers, then we can have all these programs, but you got to get to the heart of it. It's one of the reasons the millennials don't have anything and they're not going to have anything. You have a financial system that has negative interest rates. You get zero on your credit, zero on your checking account, zero on your savings. You can't have any capital formation, right? You're competing against the world for jobs, right? That's, where the, that's why incomes are down. Wages can't get raised. Well, I wanted to it's, talk about the, but, the,
1: the, the banking there where you were saying, like, look, when, when I was growing up, and I think this really contributes a great deal to income inequality. We have made it so there's only one place to put your money the stock market. And that's it. When you remember when you could get 3% on a savings account and that could compound. And, you know, for people who have lower income, they're not going to be involved in the stock market in any kind of major way. So now it costs them money to have a bank account. Not only do they not get 3% compounded, but it costs them money to have that bank account. And, And further than that, when you're in your 80s and your 90s, do you really need all of your assets tied up in the stock market because you can't put it in a bank account, gaining no interest?
0: Look, saving the greatest geopolitical weapon, one of the greatest geopolitical weapons in the world, is the savings accounts of, the, of Lao Beijing of the Chinese people. They save 50 cents on every dollar. Why? There's no Social Security. There's no health care. They, they understand they have to husband it. It's become a huge geopolitical weapon for them. Our savings is terrible. One of the reasons there's no juice in it. You're a right. sucker if you save, right? right. So th- th- my point is that Obama, you know, this great progressive president, the greatest until the pandemic hit, and we got to sort that out, but until then from 2008 to 2016 was the greatest concentration of wealth in mankind's history, the greatest transfer of wealth. Why was that? You know, well, black, the, the disparity of black black wealth, total wealth of, of average black person and the average white person Increased over Obama's years. Why? Because of his solutions of basically flooding the zone with cash to raise asset levels, the traditional Federal Reserve, big bank, Tim Geithner Mm -hmm. uh, solution to the financial crisis that Wall Street caused, right? So Wall Street causes the problem, and then Wall Street's solution is basically, you know, jizz the system up so they benefit from it. Why do you think that revolutionary, why do you think there's a revolutionary air in the United States right now? And I got to tell you, the working class in this country, they see this chaos in the street, and the anarchy in the streets. As we come through this economic carnage that we're going to have to work through, they're going to get more and more, hey, why, why is everything on my shoulders? Why I end up paying all the taxes? I have no juice in the system. I came not even I save money. It's costing me to save money, right. right? I can't buy a house. My real estate prices are, for my houses are down while the wealthies increase. And my sons and daughters—
1: And real estate taxes are up. Their attaches are up, and my sons and all the culture screwed up,
0: my sons and daughters are on the 38th parallel in Korea, they're on the ships in the South China Sea, they're on patrol in the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan, or, you know, at the Third Army in, in Berlin, you know, in Germany, and, you know, facing Russia and Eastern Europe, why Why, are, why is it the, the deplorables? It's all on their shoulders,
1: well, and they it's, get it's, stiffed it's, every it's, day, it's, so that's, that's, that's the revolution that brought Trump
0: to power, I think it's the revolution keeping will keep him in power.
1: The, the banks that were too big to fail, we had to bail them out. We made them bigger. Now they're bigger than countries. Yeah, and consolidated them. Gave yeah, them money. Together, Listen, they're bigger than we, we are. We've Tons created.
0: We've created. We've created. We've created what was in Italy in the Middle Ages. We've created these kind of uh, uh, city states that are called companies. They're first off the money center banks, but even right. worse, we've created the, the tech oligarchs.
1: Right, these oh, are kind of independent
0: oh, yeah. units that move on their own thing. And we create remember, step back. Here's the here's the Greek tragedy part of it. Remember, in the Greek tragedy, your greatest strength becomes your weakness. It's all the deplorable's money. It's their retirement, their savings, their insurance policies, the institutional investor that manages the deplorable's money, right? Has backed is the guys doing the venture, putting money into venture capital, into private equity, into the hedge funds. That's created this.
1: Yeah, some, and we some, have
0: we have debt. A, the that is had incredible. First, they steal the idea from the two Winklevoss twins, yeah. and then go beg Wall Street, uh, venture capital for money. Guess whose money that was? The money was the Deplorables. Well, it's let's let's
1: talk about money for a minute now because you're a money guy too. Our debt is incredible. We can't we can't even begin to raise interest rates because our our debt service right now. Is almost three quarters of what we spend on the military. <laughs> if we had a real interest rate here,
0: hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. In The ten-year treasuries of, what fifty-nine basis points. Yeah, or- something
1: like that. Right. Yeah. So come uh, on, if you yeah. had
0: real interest rates back, in- first off, we had interest rates that 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 President Reagan took. The country would be, we'd be Argentina. No, listen, <laughs> we're the prime reserve currency, right? No. As long as we got one great export that everybody needs, dollars. Yeah. Right. As long as you got as long as everything's got to be converted to dollars, we'll be able to kick the can down the road. Right now, we're in this thing of like modern monetary theory. We're, yeah, we're in uncharted territory. Let me ask you
1: something because you're a big history guy. You, sh- you you'll know this, but you know, I just want to know how did the Roman Empire fail?
0: Well, according to Gibbons, it was Christianity. But I, no, I'm sure it's something to do with money.
1: It's the economy. They couldn't pay their armies anymore. Yeah. And it's the same thing with with Great Britain or any empire. they don't generally fail uh, you know from a war. They fail from the crushing debt that they that they have like growing trying to run the world. And here we are in what 180 countries uh, with our military, we're still in a war in the Middle East. That's unwinnable. There's nothing to win there. My grandfather told me in 2003, and you know he grew up in Iraq for 50 years of his life i remember coming in he watched he watched two things as i was growing up big time wrestling and cnn <laughs> and i came in
0: big time wrestling being defined as
1: oh he was a bobo brazil tony marino <laughs> uh, um he, yes.
2: bruno That's also- san
1: martino when he came here to this country he thought it was real and he actually, threw, <laughs> he actually threw coffee on Eddie Creechman. He thought was, he was a manager, a bad guy. He threw yeah. coffee on him. But, like, I, I came in the day we invaded uh, that that Bush made his his huge blunder. And I've always said, George H.W. Bush, by the way, is my favorite president ever. Um, don't make that our fourth fight, by the way. He's a great man. But I always said he had no charisma. If he had his son's charisma or his son had his father's brains, we'd have had a pretty good president. Uh but when i come in there and i say you know we're just taking well, back on. Hold, hold,
0: hold, hold Bush 41 is your favorite president?
1: Yes, he is. Don't yeah. you start with me. Don't you yeah. dare. We've already got we've already got the McCain makeup.
0: Dan used to be very high on my list. Was just, he you know, was He well, you're like crushing me right now.
1: He's he was he's a great man. I can't you you have distracted me now.
0: He was a great man. He was a, he was a great man. He's a great man. War hero. Uh, ambassador of China had the state, he was a great man the most qualified He's president qualified, ever president great man
1: most qualified ever and and really said look we we had we had a war called desert storm and, and we thatcher, need to pay that, for that. As
0: thatcher, as thatcher said when she's stiff and spine, fine don't go wobbly on me george
1: he well well fine for thatcher whatever i think that's when she was starting to see things by the way so ah. um he, he yeah, see, we had a we, see see we weak presidents. He stop it, stop it, you. He we had a war. He <laughs> said, "Listen, we got to pay our bills." We're gonna. I I said, "No new taxes," but we had a war. We're gonna pay our bills. That cost him, you know, along with Ross Perot. But having said that, going back to Iraq, I I walked in and I happened to be seeing my grandfather the day we invaded, and he's shaking his head. And I said, you know, Grandpa, we're, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna take this in, in five minutes. And he said, take what? What, what are you taking? You'll, we'll never win. We'll never get out of there. And in 2003, I thought he was a crazy old man. He said, they will never let you leave, and we need nothing there, nothing. And we've just expanded this to Syria and everywhere else. And here's, here's the real irony of this. China does a huge amount of business with Iran, Saudi Arabia, everywhere else. Do you think that Iran doesn't know that China imprisons two million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps? They do know it. But they choose to do business with China because China stays out of their business. They don't,
0: they don't, they don't choose to do business with China. They're a partner of China. Fine. Iran, Turkey, Russia, Fine. North Korea. Pakistan, they are they are working in unison. They got a they got a twenty five year deal, four hundred billion dollars. They're they partners. They're is, is anybody
1: more right. oppressive to Muslims than the PRC government?
0: Iran doesn't care about that. No, the PRC they could they break the Uyghurs. As you know, Uyghurs are part of the slave labor. Look, let's let's go back in time. On the third week of January two thousand seventeen, there are two speeches given. Uh, one is I think on Wednesday and that's in Davos, and that's uh, President Xi. He goes there, and the Financial Times and The Economist, they're all, this guy is amazing. He goes and gives a speech to Davos Man, and he talks about basically the network effect that that, that China's one belt, one road, made in China 2025, Huawei, quantum computing, talks about the future of globalization, which is really a network effect of China as the centerpiece of advanced manufacturing everything else is a market of raw materials component parts all of that and uh and they praising to high heaven this is and he says in the speech the only problem we got is this kind of populism thing this populism in this you know economic na- this nationalism is a problem this is going to be a problem davos man goes crazy he, he's lauded as a a visionary and explains globalization trump gives i think 72 hours what's known as the american carnage speech and that really is a defense of the Westphalian system. It's the defense of the nation state, of really the system we have. Now, here's the problem with the she speech. Remember, you've got the top hedge funds, banking community, investment banks, you got all the media, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, all of them. You've got every consulting firm, McKinsey, Booz Allen, all the top uh, marketing consultants, everybody, even event planners, all of them, that are Davos Man, they're clapping. Remember, they're all in one business. They're in the information business. So they understand that the Uyghurs are in concentration camps. They understand that Falun Gong's being tortured. They understand the organ harvesting, the underground house Christians, the Catholics. They don't give a shit. They don't give a shit. They have no moral authority. These people are savages. Well, the people that support well. the system are savages. They praise Xi when they know he's no different than Adolf Fucking Hitler. Well, I, we
1: you know, agree on that.
0: They make we, more money. They make more money under the slave labor of China and everybody else like a fucking Russian sir. We, we, And That's why they got to be confronted and that's why they got to be taken we to, down. We
1: totally see, agree. On,
0: uh, and uh, and they are enablers of the greatest dictatorship. And here's what they're saying now. We like that system better. You see, all the time, they handled the pandemic better. Their economy's coming back. They well, want they an authoritarian it. system here in this country. They want state capitalism, right, with a handful of companies with a, an authoritarian model. And that's what this whole thing about stealing this election from Donald J. Trump and these kind of, you know, people they call the deplorables that are too down. They're unclubbable, right? Well, you know what? Fuck them, right? Because they are the they are the enablers of the greatest evil this planet has ever seen, the Chinese Communist Party well, and their business partners. Let parties. me
1: just say, you and I, there's no daylight between us on President Xi. You are right. He is a absolutely horrible human being and what he's doing to the world uh, by design, uh, I, I am adamantly opposed to, vociferous critic. I take shit over it. They surveil me. They, they give me a hard time. I'm a public citizen here in the United States, and I've had the FBI show up to my office and tell me I'm being surveilled by China. And I'm like, yeah, welcome to the fucking party. That That took you a while, but what are you going to do about it? And the answer is nothing. Having said that, I believe we have a much better product than China in in freedom and freedom of press, and Muslims here are welcome. I welcome them. you welcome them they 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 should be welcomed here where they're not welcomed in China. and I would say that I would like to see our theory of who they'd rather do business with play out when we stop dropping bombs over there. And we start saying, look, you know, we do business with horrible people. Uh, we do business with Solomon in, in, in Saudi Arabia and in many other countries. So that's not a problem for us from time to time. But if we stop dropping bombs in the Middle East, then I believe that we have a much better product than China does and that we could really gain some ground on them there. As it stands right now, the only thing that China has over us is they don't meddle in anybody else's affairs over there governmentally. Would you agree? I think China makes a pretty
0: good pitch to these guys. Hey, we'll take unlimited amount of oil, long-term deals, mm-hmm. right? And we won't. this is what they tell Pakistan, this is what they tell Iran, Turkey, Russia. We don't care how you run your deal. How you run your deal is your deal. Right. If you're a totalitarian thing, we could care less. What we want is economic relationship. Well, guess what? We could care less, too. I'll put deals on the oil and uh, and you guys be a market for our goods. Yeah. It's a pretty compelling pitch to these uh, to these monarchies that we've allowed to kind of be propped up in the uh, in the Middle East. I think it's a time to question all that stuff. Yeah. Well, uh,
1: on any given day, we could care less as well, depending on who we're dealing with. So, look, I know, I, I know you, you've just given us your time, and I, and, I, and I don't want to hold you over like I did yesterday. And a couple things to get to. Sure. Um, you know, and I also, I, on top of that, I just want to state that I think, I think, and you've been for this as well, that we need to really invest in transportation and infrastructure, and that that really contributes a great deal to income inequality. Uh, and, I, and I've tried to say this over and over again, that when you are poor – you know, you can't afford transportation to, to great distances. And your world, if you just imagine me holding my fist in front of myself, is this big. But when you can give affordable transportation like we have in many other countries, some of them even third world countries, and you could spread that world out, imagine me holding my hands so far apart, it really creates the opportunity to combat income inequality. And nobody wants to invest in infrastructure and transportation here. Why?
0: I'm not so sure people don't want to uh, don't want to uh, invest in it. I think people do. I just think the voices of those that need it the most don't get hurt. Like my mother never <laughs> knew how to drive a car. She was dependent on public transportation, taking the bus. Mm-hmm. So I'm a huge believer, and I've seen this in the neighborhood of the north side of Richmond, the bus is absolutely essential. So I'm a huge believer in public transportation and buses and trains. You know, there was a point in time the only way I would go to New York is taking amtrak I, I love the train system i think that would be better i think that that, be-
1: that should take 30 minutes from washington
0: yeah yeah exactly exactly the, the, we should have massive investments in uh in transportation in infrastructure in digital infrastructure and in building out the the um uh 5g out into the rural communities you get without the- huawei yeah exactly without huawei so i'm a huge believer in all that i think you're going to see the new, I think this new forming Republican Party that's much more working class and much more tied to working class people. I think you're going to start. I think they'll be working with Democrats on those types of there's things. There's a
1: new forming Republican Party. I, I hadn't heard. Are, are they more? Are they more like me? Please. The, 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 for,
0: the, what's forming is who actually votes and supports Trump. That's a working class party. Now there's a misalignment between kind of the the corporatists and the donors and actually who the voters are. Uh-huh. But this is why they pull the hair out in all these articles all the time that Trump's turned this into a working class party uh, in a lower middle class party. I think that's I think it's terrific. And yeah, I think that when you start seeing Hispanics and black males start to come to the Republican Party, it's going to be a wake up call. And I think it's going to be in this election. I think they're going to be shocked at the number of Hispanics and Latinos that support You know, I saw some polling early on from the campaign that said the number one issue with Hispanic males is China, because they understand in bringing back manufacturing jobs, they're going to get a lion's share of those high-value-added manufacturing jobs. A pretty high uh, issue was border security, because they also realize they don't want to compete with just unlimited illegal alien labor. So... The Hispanics and Latinos, I think, are getting the economic measures of the Strivers' economy pretty strongly, and I think black males are getting it also. And I think that's going to be the big shock of this is reverse identity politics that, hey, here's what they're identifying with, an economy that works for them, well, right? let me, not an the economy that works against let them. Let me
1: ask you, do you think there's any way that we could ever have a legitimate third or fourth political party? Because, like, I mean, the independence means what? I, nobody knows what an independent means. A, liber, a libertarian is, you know, you can do anything you want. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's chaos theory. The Green Party is, I don't know, I guess they believe in green energy. What else do they believe in? Is there ever going to be anything that says the right has gone too far, uh, the left has gone too far, here's something in the middle? How hard is that to form? I think it's pretty hard to
0: form. I think yeah, some guys it tried it. People, people put first of all just the the state party. Remember, all these elections are driven by state parties. Even a presidential election is fifty different states. You have to have an infrastructure. Although some people look at the states, says not much. It is something. So not just custom and tradition. I think the logistics of it are pre- are pretty big. Now with increases in technology, we'll see. You've got. Kanye West and Brock Pierce running this time as independents. They're trying to (laughs) talk about forming third parties. You've got people with real money that are trying to do it. You never know, but I got to tell you, there's been some pretty smart, pretty tough people that have tried in the past, and they just give up that organizationally it's too too much. Even changing these parties' apparatuses is pretty hard. So I don't think the thing is before. I think, look, I think the things right now is that you have nationalists, and you have globalists. And that's how this thing basically breaks down. It's not Republican and Democrat. Uh, it's uh, it's globalist versus nationalists. Can I, I think
1: can, I be, can I be both? Can I say that I'm a globalist when it comes to fair trade? And it's got to be fair. Otherwise, if you're going to be a nationalist country and completely unfair in trade like China, then we're going to treat you exactly the same way. But if you're going to engage in fair trade, globalism is good.
0: It's not globalism. You're, you're an independent nation that trades with the world. Remember, President Trump's more engaged in the world. Look what he's done in the Pacific. Look what he's done in the Middle East. He's not an isolationist. His trade policies, he's cut deals with Korea, Japan, uh, China. I don't think, I don't think he's, cut, he's an isolationist. He, he's more of a, he is. he's an he's a economic nationalist that believes in the sovereignty, what's best for his country, working with other countries. Yes, we have an international, global, uh, planetary economy. There's no nationalist from from Bolsonaro in Brazil to Salvini in Italy to Modi in India to Trump in uh, the United States to Farage, Le Pen in France or Farage in the United Kingdom. Is saying, hey, we ought to redo the system that we just trade with ourselves. What they're saying, we want to put the self-interest of their country first in an international system. Remember, the international rules-based order is just become a joke, which China game the entire system. To rise as a hegemon or potential hegemon in twenty-five years—that's the problem with globalism. It's probably, not probably if, you're, if you're if you're a nationalist, you're not some you're not some a retrograde uh, troglodyte that just thinks you ought to go back to some barter economy in our own country just so we're trading with people like ourselves. Well, no, it's least. good
1: that you say that. You know, I mean, people don't know that, Steve. I mean, please don't act like like. That's not a prevailing view. It kind of is for some people.
0: That's a lazy. No offense, Dan David. That's a lazy view. I Look don't have
1: this. it, even though Look. I am lazy. Uh, but uh, I, uh, you know, I don't have it. But I know you're
0: lazy. I know you're intellectually lazy because you like Bush 41. No,
1: don't even fucking start with me, pal. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm. St- that's still deep inside, ready to come out. Can
0: we, can we get to your two last questions? I got a phone. I'm getting All pulled out of. Here.
1: Well, before we get to China, like yeah. this is an investment yeah. show. What do you think of Bitcoin?
0: I think, I think cryptocurrencies uh, tied to blockchain, yeah. tethered yeah. or non-tethered, I think that people ought to take a hard look at some cryptocurrencies uh, t- tied to blockchain. I think there are going to be a lot of sophisticated, you know, China's doing one now. I think there'll be a lot of sophisticated uh, cryptocurrencies coming out tied to blockchain that people ought to take very seriously and, and, and look at in the future.
1: Okay, so what, what are your favorite investments right now that you're long or you're short? Give me your best short idea. But-
0: look, I think I have thought that this market is completely juiced with just so much of this bazooka of capital. It's kind of tough to bet against the Fed when they're saying this. But I think that these valuations and thing, I just think the stock market's grossly overvalued.
1: are you are you and, are you invested and, in the stock market? And, and,
0: and, and I, I was a huge I was a huge short early in the pandemic. I mean, we said from the time I saw what happened in Ube, I said this is a global event. so we were we were, You know, I was a guy that would tell people, "Hey, I think this whole thing's going to crash and burn, and then be rejuvenated by a massive kind of cut on the spigots." Like three X would happen in two thousand eight. That kind of happened. I just think this thing doesn't play out. I think, look, I'm not a gold bug, but I think people got to look at alternative investments. Think you going to spend a lot of time. I'm not somebody saying take this stock, take that stock, but just look at this. And I don't know how this ends. Right? It's it's pretty scary right now. Because I think if you look at Japan, I think you look at countries that have been in this for a long time, where is the growth going to come from? And I think we're very, I think uh, we we could potentially have, unless in President Trump's second term, uh, starts to really focus on this, a Japanification of this economy. I'm a strong dollar guy. I I don't like what's happened to the dollar. I think it's imperative in this country right now that we stay as the prime reserve currency. I think if that ever comes off in some some basket of the wand or some, you know, gold, uh, oil backed wand or something like that takes our place. We could very quickly become Argentina because it's just not the 22 trillion dollars, whatever the face amount of our debt is. It's, oh, the, 25. it's a contingent. It's the 175 trillion dollars of contingent liabilities. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're financially, I think uh, our balance sheet is upside down and I think it's really got to be thought through. I think, I hope president Trump attacks that in the in his second term. I think he will. Well, I hope but so, But look, Fed's, the Fed's telling you that the Bank, Bank of England's at close to negative interest rates, and the Fed's telling you that through, what, 2022 or 2023, they're going to keep interest rates where they are. We're in unshared territory. So smarter minds in mind are working on it, but I do think that people are taking a look at some of these new um, cryptos that are coming out with blockchain, and I think people ought to look at, uh, at ought to consider and look at uh, metals. All uh, right, so,
1: so you and I, like, almost totally agree on China uh, and you speak about it all the time. And, and people get a lot of that out there and I'll let you speak on it if you have time, um, uh, you know, towards the end, but there are a couple questions that come from the audience that they want to know that are kind of fun. So get your sense of humor hat okay. on. Okay. Um, who do you hate more? Roger Stone, Anthony Scaramucci or Chris Christie?
0: I don't hate any of those guys. Come on. That, I, no, I don't. I just, it's not that they're not, they're not that relevant. Anthony I knew pretty well. I helped I was the guy that tried to get him a job in the administration. Look, that he doesn't like Trump and he's turned the flip to Trump—that's that's Anthony. Roger Stone's a gadfly, but Roger Stone's I think's done some great stuff in the past.
1: He seems and to be really Christy, pissed at
0: you. I, I, don't agree, I don't agree with Governor Christie, but Governor Christie's pitched in and helped Trump. Uh, you know, I I think he gives a lot of bad advice on occasions. I've had some run-ins with him, but they they don't rock. I don't. Uh, there's no one in the world that I know personally that I hate.
1: Uh, with with Roger Stone, he seemed to be really pissed at you because you weren't willing to perjure yourself. Uh, is that fair?
0: I, I, look, the, the thing with Roger, if you go and look at it, what if you go back and look at what I told people, what I said at the time is that, even looking at the house, the the, the, the WikiLeaks thing was so marginal. It, really what he had been humping me on at Breitbart was Danny Williams. And even at the campaign, when he when he called or did the couple of emails he did, if you go back and look at him, it's Danny Williams. Remember, he had this concept that Bill Clinton had an illegitimate black son named Danny Williams, right? Okay. Unfortunately, Danny had failed a DNA test years before, but that's – I digress. But Roger was obsessed with uh, Bill Clinton's illegitimate black son, Danny Williams. Oh. So no, the Roger Stone thing was just a – and, and as the trial came out, and you know, he and the other guy—they don't even know anybody. They don't know WikiLeaks. It's just kind of the, the thing. With that being said, Roger it threw it threw out some stuff uh, early on that uh, that uh, I thought was interesting, and he's a, a compelling character. He's a, he's a guy that uh, has been a uh, is kind of a, a the street theater of politics, and I think in that regard. You got getting, and if you read his book on the on the Bush crime family, I did not. You, would, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be rubbing up on uh, on Bush forty one.
1: Yes, I would. Uh, all right, so in recent events, are you and able Trump's,
0: to? And the mooch is the mooch. I mean, it's just the mooch. I don't. Oh, you know, fuck I, him still, too. I don't. Uh, I don't agree with how he turned on President Trump. But listen, here's what I blame. That's how he could get more I, TV I, time. I, that's I, how he, he. That's how he stayed relevant. People that forced mooch into that situation, what he wasn't qualified for. I had him at OECD uh, as a as a basically a Senate confirmed position. I think Scaramucci have been terrific in. I said later you might be eligible for a cabinet position like Commerce or something like that. Let's get you Senate confirmed. Uh, I'm the one that pushed for that against President Trump. President Trump said, "You know this guy's a promoter." I think the people that came that had really uh, never come Trump was forward right. and apologized to the president or anybody else that pushed him to be the Comms guy, which he wasn't. He wasn't qualified for. I Apparently said, not not like Sean Spicer and Jason Miller and these guys, but hey, they've been doing this for 20 years, and it's as much an art as a science. It's a real craft. You just can't go in there and oh, talk. Oh, this talk. current
1: comms person, McElhaney, she's she, good. She's oh good. my she's God, good. she's, she's good. the best she's I've good ever good. seen.
0: She's good on the campaign. Look, she's Harvard Law, Georgetown. She's yeah. she's she's a tough hombre. All right, personal.
1: last last question. Are you, to the extent that you're able to talk about recent events, uh, and you know what I mean when I say recent events, right? Um, apparently... What is it like to get arrested by your mailman? I mean, did they come out with pepper spray and packing it, it, tape?
0: Is that it gets to the system that they're trying to what they're trying to do, look, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but there are no coincidences. That mm-hmm. this thing dropped 40 years almost to the day it took the campaign over and outside that sixty day window, which they say things can't happen, they clearly don't and they saw the articles about her, the woman that took over after Berman was gone, back in the Wall Street Journal, others that they're trying to target and this bar set. The attorney general said they're trying to target high-profile allies of Trump. It's it doesn't affect me. It's total nonsense. There's a, I have a contract. Don't they certain- have
1: your Don't they have your phone number? Can't they call you and say, "Hey, uh, turn yourself in tomorrow." Where are you going to fucking go in the world that they have to send the Coast Guard and the postal inspectors to come out there? I had to send call
0: the you because they couldn't get the FBI. The FBI dismissed it, but the, look, it's nonsense. Here's the bottom line: it's not shutting down my speech. I'm about to give another speech tonight. Yep. I'm more. I've got a bigger platform, more resources, and I'm more on fire because I realized early on I was never going back to the campaign. That's what I screwed up. My entire focus was on this effort to steal the election, and I'll be coming out. I think with some pretty big news kits next week, or some stuff that we've dug up. That they know that we've dug up and they tried to they try to make sure that I was chop blocked. I'm not chop blocked. I'm coming out with some pretty big things next week well, that are gonna have a dramatic impact on this campaign that I couldn't do on the campaign. I couldn't do if I was at the White House. I can only do as an independent operator of which I am. So I'm well, Why, why I'm wait till, why wait till next week? We're, to we're, here. we're here right, now. And, take in the right CCP now. and to making sure that President Trump and the Trump movement. Not just survives, but thrives in his second term.
1: So what? it's Steve, why wait till next week? We're here right now. Listen, if you just tell me the big scoop, I promise I won't tell anybody.
0: <laughs> well, unfortunately, I've got to go through many layers of lawyers to make sure we've belt suspenders and another belt. So we'll be hopefully ready by next week. All
1: right. Well, wow. look, you wow. have been fantastic uh, with your time. So, so gracious. I, I appreciate that. We obviously, I'm,
0: I'm, you ask me what I'm short. I'm long Dan David and his podcast. So. Well, I
1: don't know if you are. Obviously, we don't agree on everything, and you and I are going to fucking fight it out on Bush, and we're going to fight it. We're it out on McCain.
0: Well, you're a smart guy. You have the apparatus. You don't agree because you don't have the right information. Just over time, you should get the right information. Well, you know what? You took
1: the words right out of my mouth. You don't agree because you don't have the right information. But you and I are going to figure this out. Thank you very much, Steve Bannon. Thank thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
1: All right, folks. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe at WolfpackResearch.com or with your podcasting service. And follow us on Twitter at Wolfpack Reports. That is Wolfpack Reports on Twitter.